Alright, story time's over. Easy part of this process is over. Now it's for the complicated shit. Let's think of more stories. Although I guess if I think of more stories, I'll just record them and then put them back in that other episode, probably? It's, it'd be weird if it was if stories happen now. <clears throat> so, my goal here is to kind of walk through the idea of how you make a character. And it's a little sloppy because I kind of already started making a character and there were witnesses, so we kind of have to keep what happened the first time around. But like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out one way or another. That's the important thing. Uh, so I'll get you guys caught up with, with what I've done so far and the process involved in that. And then hopefully when you were watching future stuff you have some idea of how one gets there in the first place i'm trying to find the part where i rolled for my where's the part where i rolled for my stats nope oh, found it there's like a whole archive and so on uh we'll get back to that in a minute so there's the dragon heist here we go so we go by the player's handbook in the chapter which uh, the rules are kind of all over the place in character generation. Ultimately, the goal is just to fill out the card. So if your page is finished, then you're set. But the recommended order is to first pick a race. And so people are some people might be familiar with the 3.5 races, which are pretty much like dwarf, elf, human, half-elf, halfling, half-orc, most of those ones. <clears throat> as far as I can tell, these are new, or at least they weren't there the first time around when I played it before, is like... Dragonborn and Tiefling are now part of the base game in 5, which kind of came as a surprise. But these are all the different uh, races you can pick. They all have different story and background to who they are as people. They have, like, preferences of what kind of, like, alignment they might have. Uh, some certain races are bound to being, like, evil or whatever. Or just, like, how classes kind of can kind of go in different directions. But one of the main things is, besides the role-playing aspect of what character you are, they also have different traits so like dragonborn they have plus two strength plus one charisma draconic ancestry breath weapon and damage resistance which have different results i think you can actually just view this on here right yeah so like look at look at all this lore you can get into and this is actually like freely available there's examples for what kind of names they might have which is neat clan names traits and so on that's all neat. You have Draconic Ancestry. Choose one type of dragon from the Dragon Ancestry table. Your breath weapon and damage resistance are determined by that dragon type as shown in the table. So you're, the color dragon you are affects what element you are as a dragon, and so on. That kind of stuff. It's like different races have different backgrounds and contexts. I'm, I'm always surprised by how many expansions there are. So Elemental Evil add the, Aracor the Aracocra, the Gensai, Goliath... There's a, there's a familiar one. There's Bugbear, Furbog, Ice... I, a lot of these, I don't even know what they are. Goblins and Hoggoblins, Kenku, I'm familiar with that. Kobolds, Lizardfolk, Orcs, Tabaxi, Triton, Wanti, Pureblood, Feral Tiefling, a Tortle. Stephanie saw this and was like, oh my god, I have to play as a Tortle. But she doesn't have time. Changeling, Kalashtar, Orc of Eberron, Shifter, Warforged. It's like a mechanical man. Gith... I'm just making things up now. Centaur, Loxodon, Minotaur, so you can be a centaur, or an elephant, or a, a minotaur, and these other things. It's all neat. So this time around, I was scrolling down through here. I think I was thinking of playing one of the one of the base races at first, but I scrolled down, and I'm like, I haven't played a tabaxi yet. I was thinking either tabaxi or kobold. I was kind of back and forth in those two. Uh, but I, I went with tabaxi. And so that's what we're doing this time around for our race. 
Then for classes, these have expanded somewhat less. There's the Artificer and the Blood Hunter down here, but the base ones are pretty much sticking around. I think it's a lot easier to add a, a new uh, race to the game than in a new class, because a race is like a some modifiers and so on, whereas a class is like a whole thing, like with a whole new set of like spells or abilities and an entire new way of, of processing the game. And it's enough just to try to figure out how to iterate on these guys and how they're supposed to interact with each other and so on. So I think that's been the focus for a while now. But yeah, there's barbarians, bards, clerics, druids, fighters, monks, paladins, rangers, rogues, sorcerers, warlocks, and wizards. And then these guys that I know even less about. And frankly, I don't even really know about a warlock. I don't really know much about warlocks as a concept. I haven't ever seen somebody play as one, I don't think. Uh, but these all these are all neat. There's a lot to get into, but the basic idea is that like a cleric or a barbarian and a fighter and a rogue and a paladin are all like they're often like a melee combatant or a fighter, like a physical combatant. Rogues are obviously like stealthier and can't take as many hits and are more likely to be sneaking around and so on. Whereas paladins and clerics are augmenting their offensive powers with uh, magic that can help their allies or heal or bless or do this or that. And every character has its own particular nuance. Oh yeah, monks are also martial arts characters. Uh, whereas uh, bards, druids, and sorcerers, warlocks, and wizards are all especially spellcasty. They actually have their own decks. Blip, blip, blue. I have a pile of these right now. Ah, these are not necessary to playing the game, uh, but they're useful because of the, those cards I've been showing here and there. So I've got my druid deck of all my druid cards, and that's just handy for keeping track of spells. It does two things. One, when you're in the middle of a combat scenario, or really any scenario where your powers might come in handy, being able to page through all of your abilities that are currently available as a deck of cards in your hand is really helpful for trying to keep track of which ones are available and which ones you can do. It's, you know, similar to playing a card game where you're like, oh, here's my options. Whereas having a big list, which is the standard thing, uh, normally they're just listed in your character sheet on a dedicated page for spells. And that's it's functional, but, you know, the interface design leads some... Uh, room for uh, improvement and so an, an imp somewhat improved interface air quotes is uh to just do it with cards and so it's i find that really helpful the reason i have a bard deck is actually because uh when i see andrew i'm gonna hand these off to him so he can play his character with the deck of cards to help him out too because i just find this really useful and i thought that'd be neat so i have a I have the druid deck there's a bard deck and then there's the arcane deck which is much bigger, and the reason why it's not a class-specific deck is because there's too much overlap. Uh, it's between sorcerer, warlock, and wizard. They use a lot of the same spells. There's a lot of there's a lot of class-specific spells for each one, but they just have way too much overlap between all of them that you can't reasonably make a separate deck for each of them unless you want to have like a just a mountain of duplicate cards that are just kind of wasteful. Uh, so this super deck is just kind of helpful for that kind of purpose. Uh, they just have a lot of overlap and things in common. I can't speak to Warlock and how they work, but there's two particular categories of spellcasters that I want to mention. So there's druids and wizards are one kind of spellcaster, while a sorcerer and a bard are another kind of spellcaster. So this would be a bit of a change of pace for me. Uh, 
a druid or a wizard, they can they have access to this whole thing, all of these cards. Uh, and what they do is they change what spells are prepared at any given time. And so they have they have X number of spells per day. I got like I have a tab that's ready for to show that kind of idea. Yeah. Is that dnd5ewiki.com? This is the sorcerer pit t- table. So as you level up, you have like a proficiency bonus. You have certain things that unlock as you go up. You have sorcery points, which is that other currency I was mentioning before in the other video, which is that I should I should I should mention that now because this is a new video. But we have meta magic, and meta magic has its own currency that you spend from. So that's that, which is not your spells per day, but it modifies how your spells work. We'll get into that later. Then you have cantrips and spells, and here's your different ranks of spells. And all these cards I have, they have numbers on the back. These ones say 1. These ones say 0. A, a zeroth level spell is a cantrip. That's some special category, basically. But as you level up, you know more and more spells. So it says right here, it says, it says 4 cantrips, 2 spells. Then it says 2 spells. Uh, let's scroll this over a little bit. There we go says you have no you know four cantrips two spells and then two first level spells what they're saying is that you know you can have you have two first level spell slots if you cast one first level spell you then have one first level uh, spell slot remaining and then if you cast both then you're out of spells for the day and you need to rest before you can cast spells again that's that basic idea whereas when they say when they say two spells total like this this overall spell total here they're saying how many spells you know in total so across all of your different ranks of spells, you know two spells in total, which do not include cantrips. That's a different category entirely. And so later on, when you when you know spells that are first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, ninth, all up to, all the way up to ninth level spells, it then says you know fifteen spells total. What they're saying is that across those nine ranks, you know, 15 different spells is the idea. And I'll just say in advance, sorry if I get anything wrong. I'm just trying to help my audience that chooses to watch this stuff get some kind of intro to D&D, but I'm not going to pretend to be like a scholar on this shit. It's actually really hard to play D&D. The game's really complicated and people who know how to play it get stuff wrong all the time anyway, but also it's hard to get a lot of practice because it's really hard to get a group together for D&D. So almost almost everyone I know who plays D&D is in a perpetual state of out of practice-ness. And so I'm sure I'll get things wrong in this video, but I'm just kind of introing some people that are, you know, just used to watching uh, RPG video games and don't really understand D&D. Getting, letting them see what some of the stuff is. And they'll get some inner workings about, like, how my character works and what's going on in the campaign and so on. So a cantrip is a zeroth level spell. We'll get into the details on those when I'm picking my spells later. But like an example, like there's some weak offensive spells in here, but there's also like some minor stuff like minor illusion. You create a sound or an item. uh, You create a sound or an image of an object within range that lasts for the duration. The illusion also ends if you dismiss it as an action or cast the spell again. If a creature uses its action to examine the sound or image, the creature can determine that it is an illusion with a successful intelligence investigation check against your spell save DC. If a creature discerns the illusion for what it is, the illusion becomes faint to the creature. So basically, you can create a false object that will at at least be a distraction because people will think it's real unless they investigate it to then realize that it's just an illusion. Like, and that's a good example of a non-combat thing, although it could be used during combat. But it's a thing that like you're like, what is what? 
Like, it, it, like there's so many. I love how open that spell is, Spiner Illusion. There are so many things you could think of for what to use that do to do for four. Like, you create a distraction in the middle of combat. You could just manifest a fake object for the use of dis- for uh, the sake of like being able to deceive somebody or something like that, or scare somebody off or some other impact. And because it's a cantrip, a zeroth level spell. That means you can cast it infinite times. All you have to do is fulfill the requirements for the spell. I should have not. I just turned away from that page when I shouldn't have done that. Uh, it's casting time is one action. So generally speaking, that's like three seconds or so in in real time. If you're in turn-based combat, then it's one action is your turn, basically. But if you're not in combat, then it's usually just like, oh, that takes a few seconds. Its range is 30 feet, which means it doesn't have to be at you. You can conjure an illusion over there and be like, what? Look over there! And, like, distract people or whatever. I'm actually thinking of some fun ideas for this, so I might actually end up picking this one. We'll see. Uh, Its components are somatic and material. So, that uh, there's three components for spells. I mentioned this in my previous video, but I'll discuss it here in case people skipped the character creation. Uh, The three components for spells are verbal, somatic, and material. Verbal is things you speak. Somatic is actions you take, like gestures that you have to make to make the spell. And materials are the cost of of the spell and its physical components. And I, like I said in the other video, if you know, like Harry Potter, for example, you're kind of familiar with these ideas. Because it's like when they take the wand, they go, Allo Hamora, and, or Wingardium Leviosa, and stuff like that. And they do the little swish and flick, and that gesture is the somatic part what they're saying is the verbal part and then the materials are any other thing that they need and much like in harry potter if you have a catalyst a magic catalyst like a wand for example then that's often the material component uh minor illusion says it requires a bit of fleece but if you read about magic catalysts like wands and stuff like that they often uh those things often sidestep the material cost entirely by just replacing it so basically you just need to make a gesture and you can pretty as long as you have your your wand basically you can just conjure an illusion and if you uh pull off the deceit you might even convince somebody it's real for a moment and that might have useful role play uh implications that you can use going forward and so on it might actually have some kind of payoff and so and uh cantrips cost nothing and you can use them infinite times so as a level one sorcerer, you know four cantrips and you know two first level spells. And so you need to kind of budget that out. That's kind of, for me, that's one of the compl- most complicated parts about making a spellcaster is taking that first step of picking what your spells are and which ones you want to commit to. <clears throat> when I say there's a difference between druids, there's the druids and wizards versus the bards and sorcerers. Druids and wizards, they actually have access to all of the spells just the entire list and what happens is every time they rest for eight hours they prepare different spells and so every single time you could potentially change which spells you're allowed to cast which is neat uh so when i was playing as my lizard folk druid like i could just every single time we rested if i want to put the time in which to be fair is a lot of time if, you, if you're not taking a break for the session and coming back next week or whatever i could come back with completely different spells from that deck as long as they fit the rules of like how many spells i'm allowed to know and which which spell levels i have access to so far i could reshuffle and just go and do completely different spells the idea there is that wizards and druids are like knowledge based uh they're like knowledge based spellcasters 
they learn this on like an academic level. They un- that's how they process the concept of spell casting, and so like they can prepare all these different spells and then whip them out of their utility belt uh, when the time arises, based on all their learning and preparation and all that. Bards and uh, sorcerers are more about having like an innate talent that's latent to them, and so they learn their spells much more permanently. But instead of having access to all of them. Whenever they level up, they pick another spell to learn, essentially. And you're pretty much stuck with those. So you got to learn how to work with that as a basis and really go with there. You're not, you're not going to be randomly reshuffling to a completely different list of spells every time you rest. I think there's one rule, if I remember correctly, where every time you level up, you can forget one spell and replace it with a different one. In addition to like whatever you're gaining for leveling up. So you can slowly shift your talents, of your, your skill set around a bit, but you're much more limited but there's benefits. Uh, I don't know what the how bards work very well, but for a sorcerer, we have meta magic, and we'll get to that later when I'm getting to that part of my sorcerer class. But meta magic is uh, a level of flexibility in spellcasting that is not afforded, at least it was not afforded to me when I was playing as a druid, for sure. I did not have special ways to modify my spells. I pretty much had to play cast them as they existed, but I had the benefit of being able to change my entire backlog, my entire inventory of spells every night and this and now this time i won't so that's this, this is give and take there's some interesting ideas here but that's the uh the classes and there's nuanced differences between each one like i believe between barbarians and fighters fighters are more likely to wear armor i think fighters are more of like a skill-based uh warrior whereas a barbarian is like a warrior that's like all raw like fury and i think they're less likely to wear armor and they are more brute strength like their hit die is even different like these guys yeah a hit die is how much health you have um you when you make your character you're you take the hit die which is actually a dice a uh, a picture of these lying around dice there's a that's a d6 a normal dice that's a d8 because it has eight sides. I believe this has 10, also has 10, 20. Okay, uh, so that's a 12, and that's a 4. And so you just roll these dice. Whatever comes up on top is the result. I think people are mostly familiar with this. Why are there two d10s? Because if you take this, this one's the 10s place, and that one's the 1s place. So this is a normal d10, and that's a 10s d10. If you roll both at once, you get a two-digit number between 1 and 100. So these two combined are a d100. And so if you roll against a table of 100 different things, which we'll get to later for metamagic, uh, that's how you do that. Uh, that's the whole concept there but basically each of these is a different hit die for different people and by hit die they mean hit points not a die that you roll to hit and so the outcome there is that that determines how hardy each character is on a raw like hit point level uh when you make your character you your hit points are equal to the size of your hit die the maximum value on it so a barbarian has 12 hit points then you add your constitution modifier which comes from how much constitution you have as a stat, and you add that to that. We'll get to that, that stat later. But like, if you have a constitution modifier of 3, for example, and you're a barbarian, then you have 15 hit points. Then every time you level up past that point, you then, it's now it's less certain. They wanted to give you like a good strong amount of hit points to start with, but after then, it's way out the window. So what you do is you roll a dice. You roll your hit die every time you level up, and you get that many hit points plus your constitution modifier. So you could get one hit point when you level up 
I actually never really thought about this, but if you have a less than zero constitution, if you have a less than 10 constitution, you have a negative modifier. I wonder if that means you get, you can lose hit points every time you level up. I've never seen that before. But that makes sense. I don't know. Someone who, someone who knows more than me in the comments, I'm sure you, you might know the answer to that. That's funny. Maybe it, can, maybe it limits you to zero or something. I don't know. I'm trying to run through people through the basic idea of what the book says without actually reading the book out loud, which I think is arguably illegal to just sit here and like record an audiobook of the player's manual verbatim. So I'm definitely paraphrasing here. But you pick your race, you pick your class, and you're, you're kind of set. So once you've got your class, next step is to determine your ability scores, which I have already done. Which is, I have 10. Oh, no. I wrote down the original numbers in here somewhere. Maybe a problem with your session. I might need to reload. Hopefully it doesn't just destroy everything. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so right here you can see... Uh, these are the roll the, the roll the numbers I rolled were 10 17 I, actually I brought the chat log up in here yeah there's a command you can write uh, no, so normally you would just take a d20 I don't know where my dice are right now they think they're in my closet in a bag somewhere uh I haven't used them a lot lately but you roll a d20 and you roll you roll a series of d20s and you might have different house rules just talk to your dungeon master about how you want to roll for stats but generally speaking uh your each of your stats is based on three d20s that you've rolled and those three numbers become the stat. So generally speaking, an 18 is like the cap for how good a stat can get. And a three is the minimum that you can get. Uh, you don't want to get a three. That's not great. But 18 is your cap. And then you can go higher than 18 by having like racial modifiers and stuff like that. Or other bonuses. Or also leveling up. We did. We used a command called... We did slash roll 4d6hk3r1. Uh, so this is a, I have to reprogram this in my head for a second here uh, so 40, we were rolling 4d6 but then it, yeah so we rolled 4 dice then we did keep high 3 this is a pretty common rule that I've encountered plenty in the past uh, I think this might even be the official rule I'm not sure but uh, the idea is that we rolled 4 dice but we kept the highest 3 so you throw out the lowest number then you take those 3 highest numbers and add them up to get your number but we also have this modifier called R this R1 is re-roll 1s so here I rolled a 4, a 2, a 3, and a 1 but then the 1 didn't count because it's a 1 so it got re-rolled to be a 3 so then it's 3, 3, and 4 because it was a 4, 2, 3, 3, but then 2 is the lowest one, so that's thrown out. So 4, 3, 3 becomes the stat. That's our that's the algorithm we're using for rolling stats for this campaign. And so I, I did that command six times. It says Otekos here because we had placeholder names just, just so we had character sheets. And then we got to customize them as we went. So I rolled... You see, you, I, I showed you guys how to calculate this out so you can see how it goes from there. Oh my god, I rolled three ones this time. On that one, that's ridiculous. I did that twice, actually. That's all. I rolled a distressing number of ones, considering. Uh, well, it's a, wait, oh right, right. Sorry, I said I said d20s earlier, didn't I? You roll three d6s, is what I meant to say, not d20s. That'd be really high stats. Although I do, I think I've done that before. I think I've done a campaign before where we, I think there might have been old rules or something where you would roll a d20 and those are, and that's your stat. But I think they. 
they probably decided that you get you get more averaged out numbers if you roll three d6s instead of rolling one d20 you're less likely to have rap like wildly extreme numbers that break the game potentially but that's our algorithm roll four d6s keep the highest three but also re-roll the ones and then you just total once you don't have any ones you just add the three largest numbers together to get your numbers I have 10, 17, 16, 16, 15, and 12, which, as you might notice, are not the numbers that you... S- Go away. I'll deal with you in a minute. I have to deal with this probably before I modify anything on the sheet, because I think there's, I think the, ser- the server timed me out. Uh, as you, you might be noticing that these are not the same numbers. 0, 18, 16, 12, 15, and 18. And that's because, as a tabaxi, I get plus 1 charisma and plus 2 dexterity. So I applied these numbers to the places I wanted them to go, and then I added one to my charisma and two to my dexterity, which is why my charisma and dexterity are both 18. I have an 18 of charisma, and I have an 18 of dexterity, which is comical. Uh, Dexterity is not necessarily the main stat to go for for a sorcerer, but uh, just it's part of my backstory, being all thiefy and all that. So having... In fact, being conveniently, it fits my backstory that like being like a roguish type character, it pays to be charismatic and dexterous because you can do all the thiefy things, but also you can deceive people. So my skills are based on being a thief type character and that kind of roleplay idea. And then I'm accidentally a sorcerer is like the, the, the kind of fun idea here. Uh, I should explain that because I think I explained that in the other video and not this one. But uh, I'm, I'm I'm adapting a uh, character that I used in a previous campaign, to, and I'm probably going to keep most of the same things. But last time around, last time around that character was a tiefling, and this time around this character is going to be a tabaxi. So I'll set them apart a little bit. Uh, but I played a tiefling character, and specifically I had this this idea in the back of my head that like his backstory was that uh, he was a thief. And he was supposed to smuggle something. He was paid to smuggle something. And he was told not to open it. But he couldn't help himself. So he went and opened it. And he accidentally made himself a sorcerer. Because it turned out it was uh, something rather valuable and important was inside there. Uh, Something powerful enough to make him a sorcerer accidentally. Whoops. Uh, And so that's the character I'm rolling with here. So the idea is that he has kind of thiefy stats. So he's got like charisma and constitution and dexterity like he's like he's ready to do that kind of underhanded stuff but now he knows spells instead and he's going to develop in the wrong direction becoming a sorcerer instead of a thief uh i could have potentially dual classed or something but uh i'm not in practice enough on D, and i kind of just don't want to deal with learning how to do dual classing necessarily right now so if anything, maybe he's just going to develop... Maybe he'll be kind of a lazy thief because he's going to develop further along being a sorcerer and he's just going to use sorcerous solutions to thief problems <laughs> or something like that. But that's if you're noticing here, you might, you might notice also that like I'm specializing in deception and insight as being my two uh, chosen skills. And it's because those both speak to the more thiefy element than the, uh, than the sorcerous element. I could also go sleight of hand instead of insight. It's not. I, I can still make up my mind. We're not. We're not really there yet. That's what I was thinking at the time. For the record, we already did a session zero where everyone created their characters. It's just I. Re, I have a thing where I can't read and listen to people talk at the same time. Like when you deal with like those people, like that stereotypical person that's like shh in the, in the library. Uh, that's me. Or well, it would be if I was 
actually willing to deal with confrontations, which I'm not with random people. So I'm more likely to just leave and be frustrated. But I definitely have had those moments of like, I need a quiet place to deal with this thing that I'm dealing with. And I'm at the library because that's this quiet place and people are not being quiet. And I'm just like, I no, you don't understand. I need to get away from the people that keep talking and making noise everywhere. Because uh, I'm trying to focus on this thing. Because if, if, if anyone's talking in the room, all I can think about is the things they're saying. I cannot... I cannot like block people out to read text. So while I appreciated that uh, Effie was running a session zero to help everyone with their characters, I definitely was like, I was mostly just hanging out and enjoying everyone's company for a few hours because I wasn't making any progress on my character. But I don't need help making my characters, so we're good there. But now I'm doing catch up because I've been procrastinating a little bit. And I lost my train of thought a little bit. Oh, wait, yeah, I should explain modifiers. So, the way that it's considered is that if you have a 10, you have average stats. If you have above a 10, you have better than average stats. And if you have below a 10, you have below than average stats. So, if you have a 10 on something, your modifier is a 0. And that means if you do anything that requires that stat, which could be a lot, a lot of things. If you look on the screen, oops. Oopsie, you guys couldn't see that. I'm bad at this. Now you can see it. <laughs> Uh, when you see all these different stats here, like these are the modifiers we have. So like each of these stats, acrobatics, animal handling, and so on, they all say like athletics, strength. So if I do an athletics check, then I'm going to roll a d20. And my goal is to beat the difficulty rating of the check. So like depending on how hard the check is, which is up to the discretion of the dungeon master, and pretty much just the dungeon master, really, he can change the numbers as he wants. He'll change the uh, the DR to which determines wh whether or not you're successful. So, like maybe a harder check might be like a fifteen, and a really, really easy check might be like a three or whatever or whatever range. I'm not a dungeon master. I don't have I don't I don't have a lot of go to numbers in my head. And generally speaking, the dungeon master does not tell you what the challenge rating is. They just tell you whether you succeeded or failed. But you roll a d20, and then you add your modifier to that number. And that is the result you get. That's that's uh that's what happens as a result of the thing. It's like oh, it's like do I, can I tell if he's lying or not? Or like, or like a, a good example would be if I use an insight check because I think somebody's lying. I'm like I'm gonna use an insight check to see if I I'm to to see if he's telling the truth or not. And the dungeon I'll I'll, I'll roll the check and I'll and I'll add my modifier, which in this case is a four, and so I'll roll my number. And it's like, I actually click, I can click insight right here. I can roll, I can, oops. Yeah. Oops, now it's, it's all busted. Right, let's just refresh the thing and hopefully it won't break or something. I was meaning to do this anyway. But if I, <laughs> I'm doing it live. I'm doing it live. Uh-oh, I went back to my name, Untitled Sorcerer Project. Did it forget my name? What's going on here? What lobby is this? Should I be worried? Which which lobby am I in right now? Shit. We should be back? Okay. I just had to refresh and try to find my way back into a place again. So if I roll insight, click. It'll actually show up as an insight. and actually rolls a dice here. Or this, uh, it's like, oh, we rolled a six. You can tell from the dot. It's supposed to be on the bottom, I believe. So I rolled a six. And as you can see here, it, the result here is ten. 
because I have a modifier of four, and if you highlight it, it tells you one. It's it tells you that the algorithm here is it's a one d twenty plus four. The result of the one d twenty was a six, so the resulting stat is a ten. So then, based on me rolling a ten, that's all I tell him. I just tell the dungeon master like, oh yeah, I rolled, a, I got a ten, and then he tells me whether or not I think the person is lying, which does not confirm whether I succeeded or failed at the roll. Which is actually rather important for the concept of lying. Uh, good players will keep player knowledge separate from character knowledge, but uh, to mitigate that even more, it's best to just not tell players whether they succeeded or failed when it when it comes to certain things like that, like whether or not somebody's lying. It's like, oh, you think so, you you think they're telling the uh, they seem to be telling the truth, or oh, they're definitely lying, or something like that can be like a thing that the dungeon master can say. That's based on your role, and either of those answers could be a success or could be a fail based on the situation. You could be wrong about whether they're lying in both directions, uh, and you just need to act on that new information because that's what your character thinks now that you've done the inside check, and that's just the outcome of that situation. I find that I just find that real interesting. So yeah, you can you can roll different things. Uh, the nice thing is you can just roll things by just clicking on them, like right here on the uh, right here on this tree. In fact, I just rolled a deception check, which resulted in a nine. Even though it's a plus six, so I only rolled a three. I have terrible rolls right now. So that you can actually roll those two things against each other. Uh, if, you, if two characters are interacting with each other, the difficulty rating of insight versus deception will often be just the other person's roll. So if I'm trying to lie to somebody, and I roll a deception roll of nine, and then I tell a lie then they roll an insight check to see whether or not they think I'm lying or not. And since they got a 10, they're going to know I'm lying. And neither of us will necessarily know whether or not uh, our success, our, our check was successful or, 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 or failed. But we know what we think, at least, which is the result of the roll, which is what the, D, the Dungeon Master mediates. So in this case, because the insight check was higher than the deception check, the person who is tr being lied to is most likely aware of the fact that they're being lied to and the the deception has failed. This is basically the, exactly what I don't want to have happen because deception is my single best stat check in the entire game and it would be very nice if it succeeded, please, instead of that. Like, that's my only six if you look at, if you look at all these. And it's because I, I specialized in it right here. So you choose two to specialize in from a list based on your class. And the two I chose to specialize in are deception and an insight. So it'd be very nice if if uh, those those succeeded. I, I might change away from insight. I'm not 100 sure, but deception. I probably should do deception and sleight of hand. Yeah, that makes more sense for the thief element. At first glance, I was just like deception and insight are two sides of the same coin. So being the god of who's telling the truth would be kind of nice. But sleight of hand more directly relates to my backstory perhaps but yeah the idea is i became a sorcerer on accident so on top of the fact that i now am a weird like thief that has become a sorcerer that still wants to do the thiefing stuff and will probably do specialize in like sorcerers spells that help me with thieving more than the more so than the prototypical sorcerer spells uh i also owe someone powerful and dangerous a lot of money right now so i better get on that thieving thing so i have a re i have a reason to gain wealth because uh 
there, that's what goes beyond just greed itself because uh, I, there's dangerous people that I owe, that I owe because of the fact that I uh, went and destroyed their unspecified relic that I ha- don't know the specifics of that might have that turned me into a sorcerer. I haven't worked out that part, and maybe I'll never need to. But you know, it's it's fun to create a backstory. Last character, I, uh, last character I did on YouTube, like just it, I was I was handed a pre-made character and kind of worked from there. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to go back to like really coming up with a backstory for a character this actually is kind of the first backstory i've thought of before potentially just because my first couple of D characters from back in 3.5 were so i was so new to the thing that i kind of just made a character and ran with that and just kind of played them a particular way and didn't necessarily have a whole explanation of where they came from and stuff like that but that's our abilities so yeah, we we roll them all out. They become our stats, and we're pretty much stuck with them. They kind of they kind of shape who we are as a person, what things we're good at, what things we're bad at. For certain skills, you kind of just hope that somebody else in the party is better at that thing, and they can cover that particular problem when it comes up. But for other things, it's also just like a fun flaw. Being good at everything is not necessarily worth doing. It's also worth being bad at some things because that's the the point of the game is to have fun and have a good time and tell a story. And so the things that you're not awesome at and then you then you fail the checks and so on. That's part of the narrative sometimes. That's something that was recaptured by Disco Elysium in the way that they really limited how many points you had to apply to all those different skills that spell out your character and being bad at various things or being too good at certain things affects who you are in Disco Elysium in really strong ways. And that stuff was always really interesting. And so I, uh, yeah, the, uh, hopefully that all plays out interestingly. It's like my character not going to be winning any athletics checks. Hopefully that's not super important. He maybe should be a little, I mean, he's averagely athletic. He's okay. So it's not, it's not that weird, but, uh, yeah. This is where that's where it's fun. Where like in my story time, I was talking about how we had a bard that was below average intelligence. So like he would just make some really baffling choices, and then the rest of the party had to deal with the consequences of that thing that the bard just did. And like that was that's part of the fun. We're we're not here to win necessarily. Like you still want to play to win because being pointlessly self destructive, unless it's unless that's what your character's character is or something, would be just kind of pointless. And the, having a goal gives us like a structure to everything but we're really just there to have the session itself and see what happens and that's kind of the fun and that's what this big messy skill list is like if you've if you're if you watch my disco elysium playthrough you look at this list of skills i'm looking at i'm showing you on the screen right now and suddenly you're like oh i see what we're doing here and you and you look at how many of these things are not combat skills in fact basically none of them are and you're like oh i see the spirit decor and i see like volition and i see uh inland uh inland empire island uh i don't know why i chose the worst disco elysium skills to try to remember on the fly but like you know disco elysium is 24 different skills that all shape your personality and what you're good at and what kind of checks you can do that's D. That's one of the most one-to-one D&D comparisons I've ever seen in a video game. And go figure, the game that is most true to that kind of spectrum of crazy checks is the game where you don't fight. 
Like it's not a combat driven game at all. And it's like, oh my God, they're finally getting it. They're doing it. They're almost like they're almost making a proper D and D game in a, in a video game. And it's like, it's just because the game's all dialogue driven and you're doing a bunch of checks about like how much you know about drugs or whatever the hell. And like, that's the dice roll. And so the dice roll happens and you're, and then the thing happens. And that's why it, what makes everyone's playthrough slightly different in Disco, Disco Elysium is this specific system. And much like Disco, much like Disco Elysium, you have a small number of stats, and then all of these skills are derived from that series of stats. In Disco Elysium's case, it's four stats. In this game's case, it's six stats. But if you and it's not laid out like that grid we see in Disco Elysium, but if you've been watching that playthrough, you can kind of immediately pick up what's going on here. You're like, oh, okay, so dexterity is acrobatics. And it's like stealth and sleight of hand. Charisma is your ability to perform or persuade or lie and stuff like that. And like wisdom is like your survival and your medicine knowledge and your perception, like whether or not you're noticing certain things. And like strength is your like athletics. Like there's like a bunch of elements here where like they all like become that quilt of features. And this is outside of combat itself. These these six stats also affect combat in certain ways. But they, it's worth noticing the full spectrum of what they do here. Uh, whenever you do an attack in this game, your attack is based on one of these stats. And then when you when an attack comes at you, then you do certain roll. You, you have certain numbers that affect uh, whether or not the attack will hit you. Uh, so like if you, for example, uh, as a sorcerer, I will be a charisma caster. So having a high charisma stat is going to be super helpful because that high charisma stat will be what affects my dice rolls for whenever I cast charisma-based spells. So I'll cast a spell and I'll de- I'll declare the target or what's going to happen or whatnot. And if there is a DC that's going to happen here, then it's going to the difficulty of being of avoiding my spell or whatever is going to be affected by stuff like what level I am or what that's a I should get into the specifics of this, actually, because I need to remind myself a little bit about spells. Uh, it's a bad example, but I think spell DC is actually a bad example because it's more static. But if I was attacking with like a club, then you would roll the dex- either dexterity or strength, which is based on whatever whichever stat affects that weapon. For the club, it's probably strength. So you would roll it. You would roll a d20, and then you would add your modifier, which in my case is zero. So I, sh- so I shouldn't be fighting with a club, most likely. And then that'll be your that'll be your hit die. And then if your hit die is higher than their AC, then you hit them. If it's lower than their AC, then you miss them. Their AC is their armor class. Their armor class is this number right here. Mine's 14 right now. It's based on what you're wearing. Your your armor gives you armor class. Uh, by default, your armor class, I believe, is 10 or something. But uh, it goes up as you get better armor. But there's penalties to having high armor. Heavier and heavier armor will do negative things to you, generally speaking, and affect your like your mobility and things like that, or it can have other effects. So more dexterous characters actually have another thing where their dexterity affects their armor class, which is that the interpretation here is that armor class is just your general ability to avoid taking damage. Armor can stop you from taking damage, but also so can evasiveness and stuff like that, your mobility. So if you're high on dexterity then you actually want to wear less armor because armor can limit your dexterity modifier. So 
if you have a huge dexterity but you're wearing plate armor then that plate armor will likely stop your dexterity from affecting your armor class because you can't move around whereas if you wear like normal ass street clothes then you're not getting any armor class from armor but in my case because i have a dexterity modifier of four for having 18 uh i get plus four armor class just for my dexterity and so like that's interesting back and forth there when it, when we talk about like the difficulty of dice rolls that's one of the many examples of that is that if somebody attacks you they have to beat your ac in order to hit you and so dexterity comes in handy there and and that's uh that's why I like to have stuff like uh, my my spells that increase my AC as a re- as a reflex, which I talked about in the previous episode a bit. Uh, there's a, there's a few examples of those that are very handy. About that idea, why is my dexterity modifier a four? Uh, so default is ten for your actual number, which like my dexterity is eighteen. Default is ten. If you get eleven dexterity. Not really a big deal. If you get 12 dexterity, though, you get you get a dexterity modifier of 1. Because you get 1 modifier point per 2 points away from 10 you are. So if you have a dexterity of 12, you have a plus 1 to all of your dex checks. And in my case, if you have 18, you have a plus 4 to all of your dexterity checks. So any check that relies on dexterity, which could be certain types of attacks or it could be certain skill checks... They all get a plus four to their dice rolls, and that's how that works. Same thing goes in the opposite direction. If you have an eight, you get a minus one. If you get a six, you get a minus two. So you actually get negative modifiers to your dice rolls. I don't have any negative stats. That's just how the luck worked out this time. But we actually do have a few people in the party that have at least one or two like negative numbers just thrown in there. Ha! <laughs> found my wand. I found my wand and my Ravenclaw tie. Because this was a thing that happened. I don't know. There was a Halloween happening. We had a Halloween party at the house. It was hosted here. So it's like, I'm I'm either going to hide in my room or leave for the whole day or something. Or I'm going to get involved. So I needed a Halloween costume for the first time since I was like 12 or something. I, I don't know. When did I stop doing Halloween? It might have been... 2004 maybe that's when kotor came out right because i specifically have the, the memory of staying in in the house and playing kotor instead of doing halloween and having this sense of like eh, i think it's too late i think i'm past halloween at this point at this age i think it's like a thought that came up i don't know do 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 but i didn't i was running out of i didn't have a ton of ideas for what to wear for halloween so uh, on the last day Pretty much. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll just get a Harry Potter Ravenclaw costume. I'm not even specifically Harry Potter. I'm just somebody in the universe because that's where, that's how boring I am and all that. I don't know. Uh, but uh, Andrew and I did the Pottermore test a while back. There's a video on this channel <clears throat> where we got sorted and we're both, we're both Ravenclaws according to that weird poll and all that. I figured I'd be a Ravenclaw or I'd hoped I'd be a Ravenclaw. That's the whole thing. But that's the thing. According to the first, that's that's what happens with the Harry. Is he's almost sorted into Slytherin, but he's like Gryffindor, or he well, specifically is saying not Slytherin, not Slytherin, and it's like, and it's like, they make the point that like it's, it's one thing that which one you might have innately been good for, but he specifically strove to be a particular thing, and that's just as important. So I don't know. Maybe it's fine 
that you want to be a particular house, even if it's not the right one. Uh, even past the issue of like which one you're specifically apt to, because it's like people strive to be certain things, and hopefully they manage to obtain that idea or whatever. I don't know. I just like the idea of valuing knowledge over the idea of valuing ambition and bravery, I think, are the ideas behind the other two. It's pretty straightforward that Gryffindor is bravery, but it's a little... Slytherin and Hufflepuff are more confusing to define at times because on, t on uh, the first reaction you have to Slytherin is like, I think they're supposed to be evil. I think that's the house of evil people, but that doesn't make any sense. The 25% of all wizards are just evil people. It's like, well, it's like, no, it's like more like ambition or some vague sense like that. Whereas like Hufflepuff are even harder to define at times in the source material, I feel like. I don't know, I read all the books and watched all the movies and I don't feel like I have a great grasp. Anyway, on to sorcery, but I found my catalyst. So if I want a visual aid in the future, I have one, I guess. I probably won't need one. It's just sitting around. <clears throat> and people listening to this on the... Uh, via the SoundCloud and the audio feed aren't seeing any of this, so all the times I refer to visual things, it's useless to them, but whatever. That's formatting and all that for you. So, so we're going, I'm, I'm moving on to Sorcerer instead of character creation as a general thing, because the rest of the ones that come up is like, one is your equipment, which is boring. It's like you can pick from these types of equipment things, or honestly, your dungeon master would probably dictate what your starting equipment is anyway, so... <clears throat> it's just not that it's just not that interesting and the rest of it is like coming up with your backstory and who you are as a person and like how you interact with the party and that's also like kind of already been covered and also kind of innately part of the experience so it's not really worth going into the details of that whole system but when going to creating a sorcerer one thing is right off the bat class features okay your hit die is 1d6 and then you add your uh, constitution modifier which you've seen we've done here already I have nine hit points which is not a lot. When you start seeing the attacks I have, you're gonna be like, oh god, 90 hit points will not last you much. If I fought myself, I'd be in danger at level one. Because uh, I have a constitution of 16, which means my modifier is three, so I have a six plus three is nine. When I level up again in the future, I'll roll a d6, and whatever number I get, I add three to, and that's my how many more hit points I get that level. <clears throat> In my experience, being level one is like a fucking meat grinder. It is dangerous. Basically, anything that happens during that session can kill anybody in one hit. Uh, any sort of acrobatic or thing or like task that comes up, like everyone's going to fail that check practically, except for like one person. And anyone who fails it might instantly be like out of most of their hit points and unconscious and somebody has to like help them out and stuff like that like it's it's a it's, it's a real risk there's always a constant risk of dying because if you think about it your hit points can up to double when you hit level two like ignoring every other mechanic of the game your hit points can practically double when you hit level two like that's how weak you are at level one it's like future levels are less impactful than the le level of just getting away from level one to level two and that's not even going into the fact that like many classes start to manifest their primary characteristics starting at like level two and level four and stuff like that and we'll see some of that here there's some things i start with from day one and some things that i'm going to get over time <clears throat> but anyway uh my proficiencies i have no armor proficiency so i'm not good with any armors uh my proficiencies are with with weapons are for daggers, darts, slings, quarterstaffs, and light crossbows. 
So I might have like a bow or like a crossbow or something, but preferably I'll avoid using a melee, uh, a physical weapon as much as possible and try to use cantrips because it's just not my forte. But those are the things I can do without being at like, without being at like a massive disadvantage because there's always negative penalties for trying to use a weapon that you're not trained in. And it varies from game to game. I'm not super proficient in them because I, I tend to play spellcasters, but it's worth noting, just generally speaking, you should use the weapon that you know how to use as a character. My saving throws are Constitution and Charisma, which is why these two are checked here. Here's my so if I'm told to do a Charisma save or whatever, then it'll be like it'll go to roll a dice and then add six to it because I have a six modifier for Charisma. Yeah, because when you when you specialize in a, in a check, either for saving throws or skills, you get a plus two to that stat. So strength constitution. Uh, <clears throat> so if you see here, my Constitution here is three. So over here it would be three, but then yeah, I get a plus two for my class. Because uh, sorcerers specialize in the saving throws for constitution and charisma, so that's why those two are both plus two. That's why my charisma is a six, even though my actual charisma is a four. It gets even higher. Then it says to choose two skills from a series of skills. My options were arcana, deception, and... Oh, right, that's why I did it. That's why I shouldn't have changed that earlier. Somebody was probably freaking out earlier when I did that. Uh, we can choose from Arcana, Deception, Insight, Intimidation, Persuasion, and Religion. So your class determines which skills you can specialize in to get that extra plus two. And those are the ones that I get to have. So I'm probably going to do Deception and Insight. Because being able to lie and being able to tell when other people are lying kind of sound like two good talents to have for a... Uh, for a thiefy type character that's accidentally a sorcerer. Uh, sleight of hand would be nice, but it's just not an option. Slate of hand? Slate of... Doesn't matter. Let's not obsess over that. <laughs> so now I get the spells. There's also equipment. I'm just skipping over equipment in general. I just don't find it very interesting. Uh, but yeah, there's like... There's loadouts you can start your character with in a stock system, but I feel like equipment is most prone to being changed by the dungeon master, who might be choosing how the world works anyway. So right off the, the bat, we know four cantrips, so I need to pick four cantrips from my deck to start with. Then we have the spell slot system, which I was talking about earlier from one of these pages over here. There we go. Is uh, At level one, I have a proficiency bonus of plus two. I have to pick my sorceress origin. I know spell casting. I don't have any spell points yet, or sorcery points yet, so that's not going to come up yet. But I know four cantrips, I know two spells, and and the, and I have two slots I can spend that are two first level... Uh, I have two first level slots I can spend per day. So I can cast two total spells per day from the first level, and then that's it. And then I have to rest for eight hours to cast again. Level one characters are very weak. Immediately, I'll have a third spell at level two, and then level three, I'll have four uh, first level spells and two second level spells. So I'll have massively increased variety and skills and so on. That does mean that I know two different spells, but if I cast one of them twice, I can't cast the other one at all that day, because they both use the same pool of first level ranks. You're very limited early on, because you suck at this, which fits, because I'm accidentally a sorcerer in this narrative, so that's kind of fitting anyway. But that does mean I need to search through these two decks, and I need to find four cantrips and two spells that I want to keep, which I think we're going to walk through those in a minute, but to specify what I was saying earlier, my spell save DC... An attack modifier. <clears throat> so if I can't, yeah. So if I do a spell attack 
Right, that's the thing. Some spells are attack spells where you roll an attack roll, and some of them are just automatic spell casts that just have a damage uh, number, and that's it. Uh, when you, when I do an attack spell, and I'm using it like an attack, this is when you roll your attack spell the same way you would roll like I'm swinging a club. Uh, that's the equivalent of like usually when, like when you throw like a fireball or something and it has to like hit and all that uh, You take your proficiency bonus, which as we see there is plus two That's that's standard for every I think every class has the same proficiency bonus based on what level they are I think those always match So you take that and your proficiency bonus pretty much gets added to like most things uh, And if these numbers sound complicated Well, that's one of the reasons why roll 20 is kind of nice is it knows when to include certain numbers and when not to include certain numbers uh, but when we talk about what, whether or not you're proficient in stuff, like that number only gets added to stuff you're proficient in, generally speaking. So you take your proficiency bonus, and then you take your your uh, charisma modifier, and then you attack. So you roll a d20, and then once you take that d20, you add the two for my proficiency bonus, and you add the four for my for my uh, my charisma bonus, which means I'm adding six to any d20 I roll, and that's my attack if I throw like a fireball or something. Whereas uh, when it says spell save DC, what it's talking about is that if I cast a spell, people then need to roll against that spell to see if they can resist it or not. For example, if you throw a poison cloud out, everyone needs to do a constitution save to see if they can resist uh, if, to see if they can resist that poison and have it not affect them. Basically, they need to beat your number, and so you, my spell save DC is eight plus my proficiency bonus, so it's a ten. Plus my charisma modifier, and that and I and I don't roll, so I can't. I don't modify it with a roll. Instead, it just has a flat bonus of eight, and 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 it's a static number that everyone's trying to beat. That's in that particular cloud or whatever thing I'm doing. Like if I'm trying to do like a a hypnotized spell or a mind control or things like that, those would be spells where like a mental stat will be be. They'll have to use their mental stat to defeat me, like their intellect or wisdom or something. Or if it's if it's a poison, they have to use a constitution to see if they physically resist it, like stuff like that. Uh, so they'll roll their they'll roll their dice and they'll attack. They'll add their saving throw modifier of that particular stat, and then that'll give them their roll. And their roll has to be able to defeat my DC, my difficult. I think it's called difficulty dice. Dif uh, it's it's the challenge rating. It's the difficulty that you have to defeat. I don't remember what DC stands for right now. Whoopsie. But like they have to roll a save to beat my number so that would be my proficiency bonus plus charisma so it'd be a 14 so everyone if i cast certain spells on people they have to roll higher than a 14 with that stat in order to not be affected or to get half effect and thankfully all of these cards are very helpful and describe what happens usually if somebody resists the thing like they either take half damage or they avoid it entirely or it has an effect on how long the effect is and you know things like that so that's all very helpful let's put this book away should i go through all these let's go through all these we're fully indulging this idea here so let's go through my cantrips for a bit i think these are currently in alphabetical order aren't they this will give you an idea of what kind of options i have here and then we'll whittle it down to which ones i have i'll whittle it down in a jump cut though so that we don't sit here and deal with me agonizing over my choices here 
So these are cantrips. I can pick four of these and they're all free, meaning I can, ca I can use them over and over again, which also means that generally speaking, they're kind of weak and it's a good idea to specialize. Sometimes it's a good idea to specialize in ones that might have, that might scale better in the long term. Like they're always useful because some of the ones that just do damage are going to get outranked pretty quickly when everyone starts leveling up and the spell doesn't necessarily, although some of these do get stronger. So A is for Acid Splash. There's some very loud vehicles today. Everyone's trying to get home in time for uh, New Year's. It's probably not what it is. Uh, Acid Splash is a spell that uh, takes one action to spend. Has a range of 60 feet, which is actually pretty goddamn far. That's two turns of movement away. It's instantaneous. It just says, you hurl a bubble of acid, choose one creature within a range, or choose two creatures within a range uh, that are within five feet of each other. So it has splash damage if you want to hit two people that are near each other, but they have to be pretty close. And they need to succeed at a dexterity throw in order to avoid this damage. So they do, they do a dex save. So they look at their dex modifier, and they roll a d20, and they add those two together, and they see if they can beat my stat of uh, 14. And if they do then they can avoid the damage. And if they don't, then they take 1d6 acid damage, which means I roll a d6, which is a normal dice that you're used to outside of D&D. &D. And whatever number that comes up, that's how much damage they both take, or one, or one of them. There's a little modifier here that's worth noting that says, at higher levels, the spell's damage increases by 1d6. When I hit 5th level, it becomes 2d6. At 11th level, it becomes 3d6, and at 17th level, it becomes 4d6, which is probably not going to keep pace with all my other spells at that point, but it is worth noting that, yes, attack cantrips do scale up a little bit over time, so they're not just, you're not a level 20 character that knows this useless spell that does 1d6 damage and nothing else. Uh, it, it does, over time, get a bit better at certain intervals so that you can at least do it a little bit more with it. Blade Ward, you extend your hand and trace a sigil of warding in the air. Until the end of your next turn, you have a resistance against bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, damage dealt by weapon attacks. Ooh, that's a good time to refresh on an idea. 5e, resistance. We're all keeping up with this together. Resistance is a different mechanic we gotta keep track of here. So here's a source for this. If a creature or an object has resistance to a damage type, damage of that type is halved. Which is big. Apparently, if a creature has vulnerability, you take double damage. So, if I if I use Blade Ward, I now have resistance for the next turn against uh, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. Which means I'll take half damage from those sources if, if I do get hit. Uh, which, these will be familiar ideas if you were watching my playthrough of Pillars of Eternity, or you've played that game before, is that those are pretty much the types of damage that physical attacks do. That's like all of them. Pretty much everything is broken down to being either slashing or bludgeoning or piercing. So if I'm resistant to all those, that basically just means I'm resistant to physical attacks of basically all kinds. And so I'll take half damage from them for the entire turn. But that does use one action for me to cast it, so that I'll use up my turn. It only lasts one turn, so I cast it, and that's all I'm doing that turn. It's like one of those Pokemon moves that doesn't attack or do anything besides just protect you for a bit. But sometimes that's what you need. Especially since you can cast that and you can still move. Because 
uh, people that are used to like uh, XCOM and stuff like that are going to be used to the idea that you can move and do an action in one turn. That still applies here, too. You can either do one move and one action, or you can just do an action and nothing, or you can move twice, which is that's a sprint is when you do double your movement, uh, but then you don't actually do any other actions that turn so it's actually that, that's actually like one to one like that's what XCOM as far as I can tell is based on is just these tabletop systems that already use that exact system well beyond well, be, well before when the XCOM reboot kind of popularized that for turn based strategy games got chill touch which is funny because it's called chill touch but it has a range of 120 feet <laughs> which is really really far uh, anything that's called a touch, I would assume, is a spell. That's a touch spell. If it's if it's, uh, so we have four categories here. It's gonna be hard to see on the screen. Come on. But there's casting time, and there's range, and there's components, and there's duration. Casting time is how long it takes to cast the spell. Usually, it's one action, but some of them are a reaction, which means it doesn't take an action. For example, and some of them have take long times. Range is how far away the spell can hit something. Uh, if it says touch under range, that means you have to physically touch them, which I think is how lay on hands work, which, which is with the healing spell that most people are probably familiar with from other sources. Components will say will say V, S, and M in any combination to say that you need the verbal, somatic, or or material components. Like you need a feather, or you need to say something, or both, or a gesture, and so on. And then duration is how long it lasts. So this is you create a ghostly skeletal hand in the space of a creature within range. Make a ranged spell attack. So this is the case where I'm now rolling for an attack against their, uh, I believe against their AC, as opposed to them rolling a save against something that's happening automatically. So if it says I roll an attack, I roll something. If it says that I just do it and they have to do a save, then they roll. And there's, those are the two different ways that the spells usually work. Make a ranged attack against the creature to assail it with a chill of the grave. On a hit, the target takes 1d8 necrotic damage. It can't regain hit points until the start of the next turn. Until then, the hand clings to the target. If you hit an undead target, it also has disadvantage on attack rolls against you until the end of your turn. And then it does the same thing where at various levels it gains one additional d8 of damage at certain levels to make it stronger and stronger. And, it, and every time this is mentioned, it's worth noting... Uh, the other one did acid damage. This one does necrotic damage. Necrotic is a different element. And so you can usually ignore that and just go with it. But there's always context where something will have a specific vulnerability or resistance to certain effects. Or maybe not even be affected by certain things based on what it says there. So it's really important to know whether or not something has a certain element or what. Dancing lights. I had this one before because this is one of the silly ones you can do. You create up to four torch-sized lights within range, making them appear as torches, lanterns, or glowing orbs that hover in the air for the duration. You can also combine the four lights into one glowing, vaguely humanoid form of medium size. Whatever form you choose, each light sheds dim light in a ten-foot radius. As a bonus action on your turn, bonus actions meaning they, uh, they're, they're, you can, it's an action you can take at pretty much any time that is not your one action. So that means it doesn't spend your turn. It's just a thing you can do additionally. 
On a bonus action, you can move the lights up to 60 feet to a new spot within range. A light must be within 20 feet of another light created by the spell, and the, and the light winks out if it exceeds the spell's range. Yeah. So all of the individual lights must be within 20 feet of each other, and they cannot go further than 120 feet from me. But other than that, they, it'll last for an entire minute. And so that means, there's a few uses there. I can distract people with lights. I can create a humanoid form made of light and lie about what it means to people, potentially, and use that as a thing. Or I could just use it as a source of light in the darkness. Like, it is it is real light. So if I'm in a dark place and I can't see, then it's being able to conjure light from nothing is pretty useful. And this is, uh, it's a cantrip, so I can use it infinite times, which means I don't have to worry about... Uh, like, oh no, I've used up my one spell for the day, and now I'm just doomed to not be able to see in this cave. Like, so this this can be super helpful. There's a decent chance I'll take it. It has a special thing that it says here, which I don't know if you guys can see on the card, but the cards aren't that important to the whole process. But next to duration, it has that red diamond. The red diamond has the letter C inside of it, which represents concentration. If a spell requires concentration, then if you take any hits, basically or anything bad like happens that destabilizes you or interrupts you or interferes with you really uh you'll likely have to roll a concentration check and so you need to roll a check that determines whether or not you can keep doing the spell if you lose concentration then the spell breaks i think there might be a few spells where something bad happens if you lose concentration but usually it just means the spell goes away and so that can be a bad thing. It's not the biggest deal if I if it's a cantrip that I was just using to make light happen that I can just bring back next turn or immediately in this case. But other spells, it can be way more important. Like if I'm creating a giant torrent of air that's pushing all the enemies back, if I lose concentration and it turns off, then suddenly all the enemies are coming at us and we're going to have to deal with the fact that my crowd control just went away. Especially since the spell that I just lost was one of my spells per day, so it's also a limited pool to work with. There's really there's some really cool systems here. Firebolt, you throw fire. It's not really interesting. Friends, uh, make a small amount. That's a material. Uh, for the duration, you have advantage on all charisma checks directed at one creature of your choice that isn't hostile towards you. When the spell ends, the creature realizes you used magic to influence its mood and becomes hostile toward you. A creature prone to violence might attack you. Another creature might seek retribution in other ways at the DM's discretion, depending on the nature of your interaction with it. So one of the reasons why I'm doing reading all these spells because it's, it's it's boring, right? To sit here and read spell descriptions all all day, but like like on on paper it should be. But it's because I want to highlight stuff like this. What a cool thing to have in a game! Like I like I skipped right past the fireball because like it's just another attack. I already showed you other attacks. It's just another attack. It has a different element, a different check, whatever. But this thing, friends, you have an advantage on all charisma checks directed at one creature of your choice that isn't hostile towards you. That's interesting. Uh, it takes one action uh, to cast, has a duration of one minute, so we have a time limit there, and it requires concentration. Also, uh, concentration spells, it's worth noting, you can't cast more than one of them, if I remember correctly. So, on top of being breakable... At any, at any moment, you can't stack concentration spells. You can only do one of them at a time. And this is really interesting. So it's like, I'm a charismatic person already. I specialize in, in charisma checks. But what if I like really need to manipulate somebody to get something to happen here? 
So anyone who's not hostile to me, I can just start manipulating them explicitly. I can start using like the Jedi mind trick on them, except unlike the Jedi mind trick, they're going to know that I did it at the end. So I better be careful about what I do there. And so there's consequences here. So if they're a violent creature that just like they weren't hostile to me specifically, they were not already attacking me, they were non-hostile, but they are prone to violence, then after the spell turns off, they're probably going to be really pissed off about what I did. Uh, but if they're not, then they're probably just going to be pissed off. I mean, they're probably going to be pissed off no matter what, but they might not it might not result in them trying to murder me. They might be really mad that I did that, though. So maybe you only do it on people you're not going to see again. Or maybe just do it because it has short-term gains and then deal with long-term consequences later because you're a character that's a little... doesn't think ahead that much and kind of just does impulsive things to get what they want and then has to deal with the consequences later. That's part of the fun of D&D is those consequences that come back later can be more interesting storytelling. So, like, Friends is actually a pretty interesting spell... I'm, there's a decent chance that I'll, I'll 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 that might be the ones that I the one that I keep. I'll I'll run you guys through the ones that I keep when I'm done with this. Light is a touch spell. You touch one object that is no larger than ten feet in any dimension, which means that it can't be ten. It can, it can only be ten feet wide, ten feet tall, ten feet thick. Like anything bigger than that, it's too big of an object. Until the spell ends, the object sheds bright light in a twenty foot radius and dim light for an additional 20 feet. So it's a lot of light, way way brighter than the other object. The light can be colored as you like, completely covering the object with something uh, opaque blocks the light. So you can block the light by putting like a blanket over it or whatever, you can change the color of the light. The spell ends if you cast again or dismiss, if you cast it again or dismiss it as an action. So its duration is one hour. So this thing will light, be lit up for one hour and it does not require concentration unlike the other light spell. But you also can't move it around with your mind. It, a physical object has become a thing that sheds light. Uh, so you can do that on like a torch that you can't light for whatever reason. You can make it magically a light torch or whatever. It's very bright and it can only be dimmed by either covering it with something or by you turning it off yourself basically. Otherwise it'll last for an hour. There's barking in the hallway now. If you target an object held by or won by a hostile creature, the creature must succeed a dexterity saving throw to avoid the spell. So they can do it. They, so they can dodge it, but otherwise you can cast light on an enemy. Which, once again, it's fun to think about the consequences. Of that right, like uh, maybe the dungeon master might decide that they say that the enemy fails a concentrate uh, concentration check or they have to make a concentration check or whatever on whatever spell they're currently casting because you just distracted them by making them glow or something uh or maybe maybe that enemy's trying to get away in a dark area and you light them up and now you can very easily tell where they are and chase them down or there's so many different contexts where that might come up and the versatility of these is what's fun these descriptions are in, are intentionally vague in what they do and why you would want these spells because they leave it up to your imagination why you would even want this thing in the first place and the thing about that is like a video game kind of can't do that the the number of the the list of interactions you have with video games is so finite that generally speaking everything has to have a really specific purpose otherwise you're probably never going to use it and a good example of a weird thing might be like the drop stones in Dark Souls that you drop on the ground and they glow and that's it. 
There's one specific level in Dark Souls 1 where those really come in handy because it's invisible platforms. And aside from that, it's kind of up to your own discretion. They just gave you a weird item you can just do stuff with. But but as really people just use it to like decorate their PvP arenas here and there, and that's about it. But like in D and D, something weirdly specific like that could do so many things. Like what if that what if the what if you took that little glowy dropstone that has sparkles coming out of it into the air in Dark Souls and you used it to like booby trap your your valuables? Like you put that in with your valuables. And somebody that tries to run off with your stuff, they'll be marked by this weird glittery glowing thing so you can track them down. It's like, there he is. That's the thief. Like, it'd be like a sting operation. Like, you're trying to catch this thief. So you lay, you lay out this thing that's full of, like, stuff that would mark them. And then you can chase them down when they're running away with the stuff. And, like, that could be the mission that you were sent on by some noble or whatever to find this thief that's been plaguing them for the last few weeks. Like, this is the kind of really specific shit you can get out of this. That's, what, that's why this is fun. Oh, I do like Mage Hand. Is that barking just going to keep happening? Somebody's just getting the dogs really excited right now. Uh, Mage Hand is one, a one action that lasts for a minute, 30 feet duration, or 30 foot range. As a, it's a spectral floating hand that appears at a point you choose within range. So it's just it's a spooky ghost hand that everyone can see. The hand lasts for the duration or until you dismiss it as an action. The hand vanishes if it ever has is more than 30 feet away from you or if you cast the spell again. You can use your action to control the hand. You can use the hand to manipulate an object, open an unlocked door or container, stow or retrieve an item from an open container, or pour the contents out of a vial. You can move the hand up to 30 feet each time you use it. The hand cannot attack or activate magic items or carry more than 10 pounds. So it's like a, a kind of weak and kind of hilarious version of like force push or force pull the idea of like you conjure an actual ghost hand that people can see i imagine it being like mickey mouse's gloved hand or whatever and it can like go grab an object or open a door or move things around at range where you can't physically reach it and that can be super useful for a different a few different reasons in fact that's that's one of the things that comes up in like i think like system shock 2 is like it's very helpful when you gain the ability to like move an object that you can't reach. It's like, oh, there's there's a special weapon or ammo up on that ledge, and there's no way to get there, but I can bring it to me with this button. That's very useful. There's a lot you can you can see why it'd be like sorcerer would be a fun thing to be accidentally when you're actually a thief because like a lot of these spells sound like thief actions to me. <laughs> Mending. A uh, spell repairs a single break or tear in an object of your, at your touch, such as a broken chain link, two halves of a broken key, a torn cloak, or a leaking wineskin. As long as the break or tear is no larger than one foot in any dimension, you mend it, leaving no trace of the former damage. You can repair things. That's kind of useful, isn't it? One of the things you could use that for, it takes one minute though, so it's not, this is a rare... This is rare for this pile in particular, but it, you can spend an entire minute mending something. So it's not an in-combat thing necessarily, but you can use that to undo damage that you did, or you can do it as a trick. You can do it like a parlor trick of like, oh, look, this cool thing I can do. See, I'm magic, which might have uses at like a tavern or something. Or if you accidentally damage something that you're going to get into deep shit for damaging, like you could potentially undamage it, which is kind of a handy trick to have. There's a, a few different reasons this might be helpful. 
like they even use the leaking wineskin example to say that like if something's leaking you can make it stop leaking with this power which is useful but it's like super open to interpretation of why this would ha why this would ever come in handy and it's up to both the dungeon master and the player to come up with situations where this would even be relevant because if you're limited to thinking in terms of like diablo 2 this is like not even a real spell <laughs> but in D&D, it could be the crux of your entire session of that day is like that one time you cast mending and change the course of the entire entire session like they even use the example you can fix a key ooh message range of 120 feet duration of one round you point your finger towards a creature within a range and whisper a message the target and only that target hears the message and can reply in a whisper that only you can hear that's neat you can cast this spell through solid objects if you're familiar with the target and know it, be, it is beyond the barrier. Magical silence, one foot of stone, one inch of common metal, a, a thin sheet of lead, or three feet of wood blocks the spell. These are very specific. There's a different thickness per material that would be a thing that blocks the spell. The spell doesn't have to follow a straight line and can travel freely around corners or through openings. So you can carry a message to somebody else to communicate to them without alerting other people around you. And they can even respond. That's a fun idea. And it's a, and once again, these are cantrips, so you can cast them infinite times. So messages could be my thing. So like, it doesn't even have to just be like, wow, I can carry secret messages around and like, do some cool smuggling shit or like do covert operations where we're like infiltrating and we can't let anyone notice that we're here. So we, but I can communicate silently, and isn't that cool? I could also use it to annoy the fuck out of just one person. Like I just have one party member I just really don't like and I just want to irritate them constantly. I can just keep sending them messages all the time that no one else can hear. Or I can gaslight people or whatever the hell you want to call it. Probably, this probably is beyond gaslighting. But uh, you can make somebody, you maybe you can make someone think they're crazy by just continually fucking with them and sending messages at them that they think are like, god or the devil or d d demons or some bad thing that's happening and they're like oh god and they, they think the message means something else and they're freaking out and it's just you screwing with them these aren't necessarily all the same things that i would do but like based on your alignment how good or bad you are or what your goals are and who that person is you might have a variety of uses for the ability to send messages at people that they don't necessarily fully understand so that's kind of fun minor illusion that's you create an image. Yeah, we talked about this earlier, but you can you can create an image that people will kind of think is real unless they specifically like inspect it to figure out whether or not it was it's actually just an illusion the whole time. Which obviously that can be very useful, just being able to create an illusion. Poison spray, Constitution saving throw. They take one d twelve poison damage. I always I'm always tempted to take poison spray because of its damage. You get to hold. You get to roll a whole d12, which is pretty all right. Everybody else has to roll like a six or an eight or a four for each spell. So a d12 is a pretty good attack roll for a cantrip at the beginning of the game. Uh, but a d12 is huge variety. You could do one and it can do twelve. So it's like huge. It's a huge range there. But you might notice if I did twelve damage to myself with this spell, I would die because my character has nine hit points total at level one. That's how weak you are. Like you can one shot yourself with some of your spells. The downside of poison spray is that all those other spells I was talking about are long range. Poison spray has a range of 10 feet. So if you're looking at a grid, a grid in D&D is 5 feet per square. So you can only hit somebody 2 feet, two, uh, two squares away from you if you're playing on a gridded map. Uh, which is not great, 
but it does do a lot more damage, so it's always kind of tempting as a self-defense thing, like whoever's currently attacking me, I can throw a poison in their face. Hooray. Press digit... This one's difficult. Press to digitation. I think that's how you could pronounce that. Your spell... Uh, This spell is a minor magical trick that novice spellcasters use for practice. You create one of the following magical effects within range. This is what this is a, a parlor trick spell a little bit. You create you can create an instantaneous harmless sensory effect. So you can't hurt people with this. Such as a shower of sparks, a puff of wind, faint musical notes, or an odd odor. You instantaneously light or snuff out a candle or a small campfire. So you can light fires with this. It's kind of fun. That's potentially hazardous in a way that isn't uh non-damaging. Uh yeah, I think I think you can bend the rules there. It says it's not harmless, but I think you can light a f you can probably light a fuse with it or something and do something nasty with it. Uh, you instantaneously clean or soil an object no larger than one cubic foot. You chill, warm, or flavor up to one cubic of foot of non-living material for one hour. You can make it hot or cold or flavored. This is a fun spell. Uh, you make a color, a small mark, or a symbol appear on an object or surface for one hour. You create a non-magical trinket or illusory image that can fit in your hand and that lasts until the end of your next turn. If you cast the spell multiple times, you can have up to three of its non-instantaneous effects at the same time, and you can dismiss such an effect as an action. So it's a, it's just a, it's a weird magic trick thing. You can... You can do basic magician shit, and also some really weird specific things, uh, but they're all grouped together in one spell so that you can get the value out of it by being able to just take it as one cantrip because they're super conditional and weird effects, but they sound fun. But I probably, I probably more likely to take some of the other things instead. Ray of Frost, 1d8 cold damage at, 10, at 60 feet. Oh, and they go slower. Their speed becomes 10 fewer, so they become 20 instead of 30 if they're a standard character. Uh, shocking gra- Ooh, I've just dropped all my cards. I'm a fool. Fool I am. Ah. They were in order. There we go. Shocking grasp. Lightning springs from your hand to deliver a shock to a creature you try to touch. So it's a touch spell, unlike the other ones. They take 1d8 uh, lightning damage and can't take reactions until the start of next turn. So if they have a reaction-based spell, Shocking Grasp will stop that from happening. Or any other reactions. Like, some reactions are involved, like, for example, uh, uh, I think Attack of Opportunity is a, is a reaction. Which is another thing you're familiar with if you've played Pillars of Eternity. It's the idea that if you're engaged in melee combat with somebody... You can take an attack of opportunity if they leave your if they try to leave your zone, if they try which is like it's called disengaging. If they try to leave your attack range and go somewhere else or whatever and run away from you, they make themselves vulnerable to being hit by you, which means you get to take an extra attack just in that moment as a reaction. It's a free hit essentially uh, if it hits, and it can be devastating. Which is a thing that happens in Pillows of Eternity is that if you if your melee fighters are currently fighting or really anyone like if the if them if their melee fighters reach your mage for example, it's often a bad idea to try to run away because the act of stepping away from them gives them an instant free hit that sometimes might even have an advantage. Uh, I think Bird was playing like a fighter or something before, or it was a paladin, wasn't it? And like some of these characters have uh, 
can even specialize in being good at attack of opportunities so that they do worse things to you in these situations. Uh, True Strike is the last cantrip I have access to. There are more cantrips. If I pull out the whole deck that had zeros on the cards, there's a lot more of them, but I pre-sorted them to be just the sorcerer ones yesterday. Uh, but there are even more cantrips that can be cast by druids and bards and warlocks and wizards. And some of them are these cantrips and some of them are not. So it's a, it's a whole range to them. True Strike. You extend your hand and point a finger at a target in range. Your magic grants you brief insight into the target's defenses. On your next turn, you gain advantage on your first attack roll against the target, provided the spell hasn't ended. So that's interesting. This is more of a this is more of a combatant-oriented uh, sorcerer. It's kind of a bit of a difference. So you gain advantage against your attack uh, when you attack that target next, but you have to spend a whole turn casting it. But it has a 30 feet range, so if you're a melee user and there's an approaching enemy, you can cast True Strike on them at a range of 30 feet to be ready for the next time you fight them in a minute when they reach you. And then you attack them and you'll have advantage. Advantage is denoted here on the sheet. You can have advantage or normal or disadvantage. If I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. If you attack with advantage, then you roll two dice for your attack roll that thing where there where you like you you attack and then you add your proficiency bonus then you add whatever your attack stat is for that attack be it strength or dexterity for a physical attack or like charisma or wisdom or intelligence for a spell for example so you, so you you add you you roll normally you roll a dice then you add your proficiency bonus then you add your stat bonus but if you attack with an advantage you roll two dice and you take the bigger number of those two and then that's your so the, and that's that's the base that you add those other two numbers to is that you roll two dice and you take the better one if you have if you have disadvantage you roll two dice and you take the lower dice so basically having attack uh, advantage or disadvantage does not directly bump your number up or down in any particular direction and uh by any specific amount instead what it does is that it changes your odds which is pretty true to the idea of having advantage or disadvantage. I guess like what those words mean is that they having an advantage gives you an increased chance of doing well and disadvantage gives you a decreased chance of doing well, but it's still completely chance. You still just roll two dice and you take the better one or the worse one based on having advantage or disadvantage or just roll one dice if it's a normal attack. And so true strike gives you a free uh, advantage attack. Not free entirely, it costs you... Let's see. The only component is somatic, so it does not require... Interestingly, it does not require you to say anything, and it does not require you to use any materials, so it's a free spell on that aspect. And since it's not a verbal spell, you can you can cast it silently, which means you could do it on a... You could do it when you're sneaking up on somebody. You could cast True Strike on them and then take them the fuck out, hopefully. Because it doesn't say anything about them being aware of your spell, which is... that That's interesting. So you could use, you could use this for a sneak attack. Because it's only a somatic component, which means it's only some kind of gesture, which is the the pointing, I guess. Pointing makes you good at punching them or something. Uh, but it does cost an action. So you have to spend... If, if you're out of combat, it's very easy to sneak this in and right before you attack them if you're sneaking up on somebody. But if you're doing it... Uh, if you're not doing it before that, if you're doing it... Uh, 
during combat, that means you have to spend an entire turn casting this, and all, all you can do is move. You can move up to 30 feet and then cast True Strike. So you could be running backwards away from them while they're moving towards you at the same time, and you're casting True Strike just to get that in before the hit happens, or there's a few different uses. I don't know. So that was a lot. But like, if you're talking about like what a sorcerer is, it's kind of a wide net, right? Like these are a lot of spells, and these aren't even my first level spells yet. I get four of these, but there's like 20 or some shit in here. So like two sorcerers can be completely different characters standing right next to each other with completely different abilities. One of them could specialize in doing sneak attacks, apparently, and illusions, while one of them likes to throw acid in people's faces. And those are those are different people. It's getting late. This is taking a while. I've narrowed it down to... I, 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 I remember to dismiss my lights. I was like, you know what? All these light spells? Bleh. I don't need these light spells. Why would I take light spells? That's silly. Uh, they're kind of useful as a distraction, but Minor Illusion is better as a distraction. So I don't really need the light spells because Tabaxi have dark vision. So I can see in the dark. So I don't really... I don't need no spells that create light. That's everybody else's problem if they can't see in the dark. I'm not building my character around hypothetical people he hasn't even met yet. That's what the story is going to do to us or something. But I've, I've narrowed down to six. I have friends, message, minor illusion, mage hand, true strike, and poison spray. As you can tell, I immediately narrowed down to one attack spell. And then it's then the rest of the slots are about what kind of toys can I have? I mean, honestly, you can just keep casting the same attack spell over and over again. It mostly comes down to whether or not you want to use poison spray or fire bolt or something like that. Uh, which I could go with fire bolt. I'm kind of torn between poison spray and fire bolt. Poison spray seems more inherently uh, thiefy than a fire bolt. But the fire bolt has its role, so I'll stack those two up for now. But for now, I want to go through these guys. My level one spells. <sighs> we might have to go fast on these a little bit, because there's a lot of them. And this is actually taking a while. D&D &D takes a while, especially the setup. Once you get past the setup, you can just show up for the session and just enjoy hours of stuff. One thing is that True Strike... Oop. Oopsie. I kind of like awkwardly dropped something in a way where I kind of bent it. One thing is that True Strike kind of interests me because I wasn't very familiar with that one. I didn't remember it very much. I like the, I like the advantage on an attack. So I want to hold on to that just because if I find a uh, level 1 spell that I really like, I realize that it says it gives me an advantage on my first attack roll against this target. That could be a spell. There are spell attacks. So if I pick a spell that I really like, and I can only cast so many spells, being able to use True Strike to extra ensure that the spell lands could be very nice as a, as a free action. But I have to go through all these spells. And these, these are level 1. So these are stronger because there's a budget to how much you can use them. They're still they're still going to be base level, but they're going to be much stronger, generally speaking. So like the attacks are stronger, the other effects can be are more crazy, which is why they're much more limited in how much you can use them. All right. Oh, right. This happened too. It's a uh, vizup. I'll have to like maybe I'll remember to like scan that and put it in the picture, but uh. Stephanie just slipped this under my... I think it was Stephanie. It had to be. She uh, slipped a customized Bidoof thing. This whole Koof thing keeps fucking going. Where she drew... Uh, she drew like the, the Bidoof as being me. 
with Kiki under the desk because during all of our recording sessions of Pokemon and Death Stranding, Kiki's constantly like under our desk and she's like banging her head on the top of the table and so on because she just keeps making mistakes. She crossed out tackle and wrote calmer jointing. And she crossed out Hyperfang and wrote Kiki Avoidance. Flip a coin if heads get tangled in headphones. Yep. That's about right. <laughs> Let's put this somewhere else. Oh, shit. That's the mess. Yeah, that dog's fine. She's well behaved, but she doesn't understand headphones. A lot of the dogs don't, so they just get like... They just run head first into the cords and then like tingled up in them and then yank everything out. It's like, no, stop. Burning hands. That's a 15 foot cone of fire that comes out. 3d6 damage. On a failed save or half as much if they successfully save. Charm person. You attempt to charm a humanoid you can see within range. It, ta it must uh, make a wisdom saving throw and does so with advantage if you or your companions are fighting it. So if you're fighting something, you're less likely to charm it because of the fact that you're already fighting it. So it's not exactly subtle to try to like mind control it basically at that moment. If it fails, it is charmed by you until the spell ends or the charmed creature regards you as a... Uh, or, oh, or until you or your companions do anything harmful to it. The charmed creature regards you as a friendly acquaintance. When the spell ends, the creature knows it was charmed by you. So it's an even stronger version of friends from earlier. Because uh, you can use it against even hostile targets. And it's, uh, they have to do a save against it. And it lasts an hour. So friends only last one minute. And it's a concentration spell. A charm person is not a concentration spell. And it lasts an entire hour. But only if it succeeds. So you could get a hostile person to be on your team and, and stuff like that for an entire hour. Uh, but it's harder. But then they know. So, consequences. Chromatic Orb. I remember liking this one. You hurl a four-inch diameter sphere of energy at a creature that you can see within a range. You choose acid, cold, fire, lightning, poison, or thunder for the attack of the orb you create. And then make a ranged spell attack against the target. If the attack hits, the creature takes 3d8 damage of the, of the type you choose. So good versatility. If you're like me and you're only taking a couple of attack spells with you, having a spell where you can choose what element it is is obviously pretty helpful. It's not like devastatingly strong though. Uh, 3d8 is pretty alright actually. Considering I have 9 hit points, being able to do up to 24 damage is intimidating. <laughs> Color spray. A dazzling array of flashing colored light springs from your hand. Roll 6d10. The total is how many hit points of creatures this spell can affect. This is a particular effect that keeps happening. Uh, starting with the creature with the lowest uh, current hit points, each creature affected by the spell is blinded until the spell ends. So you roll 6d10. That might be just up to 60. And if you do get 60, then you can affect 60 hit points worth of creatures. It's a little bit, a little bit weird, but this is how like sleep spells work, where you do a, a, an area of effect spell that can try to sleep a bunch of people. Uh, it also is based on hit point total. So the, weak, the more you weaken people, Pokemon style, the more able to debilitate them you are with some of these effects. Because they're like, they have, to, they have to come up with some sort of way of affecting how many people can hit them. Comprehend languages. 
For the duration, you understand the literal meaning of any spoken language that you hear. You also understand any written language you see, but you must be touching the surface on which the words are written. It takes about one minute to read one page of text. So that's one hour. So for one hour, you can you can understand uh, messages in other languages. So that's useful. Uh, it's only for other languages, though. It specifically says the spell does not decode secret messages in a text or glyph, such as an arcane sigil that isn't part of a written language. So you can understand other people's languages, but it doesn't decode secret messages. But for an hour, you can understand a different language. So that's handy. And they give you a limit specifically of you can you can read one page per minute. So that if there's a... You can only read through 60 pages per spell cast. So there's a limit. You can't just like... I can understand other languages. And then just tell the dungeon master you check this entire library for whatever information you're looking for. It's like, no, you have a limit on how much you can read. Detect magic. For the duration, you sense the presence of magic within 30 feet in front of you. If you sense magic in this way, you can use your action as to see a faint aura around any visible creature or object in the area that bears magic. And you can learn its school of magic, if any. So that's handy. And it's for up to 10 minutes. Disguise self. You make yourself, including your clothing, armor, weapons, and other belongings in your person, look different until the spell ends or until you use your action to dismiss it. This also lasts one hour. You can seem one foot shorter or taller, and you can appear thin, fat, or in between. So this is the ultimate Assassin's Creed blend button, is you can look like a different person entirely for an hour, which uh, is good if you like... <sighs> good if you like running away from guards and turn a corner and then just become like a nun or something, who is like one foot shorter than you were when they were chasing you and stuff like that. The changes wrought by the spell fail to hold up to physical inspection. For example, if you use the spell... To add a hat to your outfit, objects pass through the hat, and anyone who touches it would feel nothing and would feel your head and hair. If you use the spell, uh, spell to appear thinner than you are, the hand of someone who reaches to touch would bump into you while seemingly still in midair. So your physical dimensions still apply to touching you, but you look different, is what they mean by it doesn't stand up to physical inspection. What a cool sounding spell. I might want that. But I might want to keep an attack spell around too. I don't want to. I don't. That's the thing is I don't want. I don't. I don't want to completely screw the party over by not having any attack spells. But I also don't want to screw the, the party over by not being creative enough with my my choices of spells because I want to have some really cool solutions for all the non combat stuff that might happen. Because combat's kind of the least interesting part of D and D because that's the least interesting part of role playing. Unfortunate how the entirety of video games is just that part. Expedious retreat. Spell allows you to move at an incredible pace. When you cast this spell, and then as a bonus action, on each of your turns until the spell ends, you can take the dash action. Hmm. That's interesting. So you cast Expedious Retreat as a bonus action. Since it's a bonus action, that means it doesn't cast. It doesn't cost a turn to spend it. You can just act. You can just spend the spell whenever you want to in the middle of a, a fight. And then it says that you can use the dash action, which is what I was saying earlier. Is I called it sprint, but you know what I mean. It your normal movement speed is thirty for most characters. It might be different for certain characters. Dash doubles that, but you don't get to use an action because you're essentially using your action to do a second movement action. So you move twice. So you move for sixty. Uh, 
but when you cast this, then you can do dash as a bonus action, which means that you can do the extra 30 feet without using up your action. I think that's what it's saying. I th I, 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 the good news is, if you ever have any rules lawyery things to do, or you don't understand something specific about a rule, or what a card is saying, or a spell is saying, you can just Google that shit, and you definitely know that some people have been arguing about it on a forum for years, and somebody came to some kind of an answer. Uh, and ultimately, you can you can show evidence of other people's rulings sometimes, but if, ultimately, just talk to your dungeon master, and you guys will come up with your own explanation, which they might also use outside sources, but it's not real. It's not a video game, so you could just, like, ultimately, like, your discretion is uh, what matters. And, and similarly, you can have home rules where house rules where the dungeon master and you can just agree that something works differently because that's just cooler and sometimes rule of cool is more important than the integrity of the original game you're using because it's all make-believe anyway false life bolstering yourself with an necrotic facsimile of life you gain 1d4 plus 4 temporary hit points for the duration so you give yourself one, so you roll a d4, then add a 4 to that, so it's anywhere from 5 to 8 hit points, and they're temporary, so they go away after an hour. So you kind of just keep yourself going a little bit. It's oddly distressing, it's like a weird, sad healing spell. Featherfall. Choose up to 5 falling creatures within range. A falling creature's rate of descent slows to 60 feet per round until the spell ends. If the creature lands before the spell ends, it takes no falling damage and can land on its feet. And the spell ends for that creature. And it lasts for one minute. So 60 feet per round, that's basically the speed that people run at, according to this game. So they're essentially running at the ground, which is still kind of fast, but not as fast as falling is supposed to be. And it specifically, it does specify that they don't take, they don't take fall damage. So if you have Feather Fall... You can take. You can choose five people. One of them would be you, hopefully. Uh, if you all like come, you all fall off a cliff as the party. You can go save your entire party with feather feather fall, and then you guys don't die. Isn't that useful? Fog cloud. You create a twenty foot radius sphere of fog centered on a point within range. Remember, each square on a on a map is five feet, and radius is half of the circle. So it's a circle that would be. 40 feet across, which would be eight squares across, which is in many maps a pretty big circle. Uh, a lot of rooms are that are smaller than that. It lasts for the duration or until a wind of moderate or greater speed disperses it. And the idea is that the fog would obscure visuals. Jump! You touch a creature. The creature's jump distance is tripled until the spell ends one minute later. That's fun. Long Strider. Touch a creature. Target speed increases by 10. For an hour. Mage Armor. Uh, you, touch, you touch a willing creature that's not wearing armor. Probably me. Touching myself. And a protective magical force surrounds it until the spell ends. This target's base AC becomes 13 plus its dex modifier. So going back to my character. Thunder in the morning. <laughs> Uh, right now my armor class is 14 because we're adding my dex modifier 4 to 10, I think. I think it's, I think it's 
I think your armor class might be eight plus your proficiency modifier, which is two for most people at level one, and then plus four for my dexterity, which takes us to 14. This takes 13. It might just be 10 plus your dex modifier. <clears throat> this would take it thir to 13 plus dex modifier, which makes which, which would mean I'd have an armor of 17, which is a lot. That's like somebody wearing real armor, amounts of armor, but I'm a mage. It's a that's a very good spell to have to, for defensive purposes. The downside is that it's a it's a level one spell. So at level one, I only get two of those, and I can only cast two of them. So it's definitely a bummer to think about mage armor being something that uh, I run out of and stuff like that. Yeah, but it lasts eight hours. Isn't that neat? Well, that, that's actually really neat. It ends at the top. Oh, that's why I use this spell. It lasts eight hours, and it doesn't go away per fight. Yeah, I had this on my previous version of the same sorcerer, and I'll probably... Uh, there's a decent chance I'll keep it again, because it's so effective. It functionally takes my AC of 14 and gives me three more, so I have 17. And it just sticks around for eight hours, which means if we're going through a dungeon, I just have mage armor active the entire dungeon. And, like, that bonus to AC could have really... could be really good... Just forever, potentially. Not even just at low levels. So that's nice. Magic missile. You create three glowing darts of magical force. Each dart hits a creature of your choice that you see within range. They do 1d4 plus 1 damage to its target. If they all strike simultaneously... Yeah. They all strike simultaneously, but you can choose who they hit. So they can all hit the same person, or they can hit two and one, or three different people. Not very strong, though. But a range of 120 feet is a lot of range. And, uh... Oh, and th this one scales. Instead of getting stronger as you level up, instead, if you cast it at any higher rank, it gets plus one projectile per additional rank. So it's a first level spell. If you cast it at level five, you gain four additional projectiles. So it just keeps multiplying. Which, come to think of it, I think is how Magic Missile worked in... Uh, World of Warcraft. I think I remember playing as a mage and like arcane missiles. I think it's called. As you get as it gets stronger, I think the number of projectiles increases. But I could be imagining that. It's been a long time since I've played a mage in WoW. I don't like playing spellcasters in WoW very much. A ray of sickness. A ray of sickening green energy lashes out toward a creature within range. Make a ranged spell attack on the target. On a hit, does 2d8 poison damage, and they must make a constitution saving throw. On a failed save, they're poisoned until your, until your next turn. I think poison gives them a disadvantage against certain checks or something. But yeah, there's a dis dis distinction here. This, this is, a, this is a, a hybrid we haven't dealt with yet, in that it has uh, the attack roll and a saving throw, but they happen separately. So we had an attack that you did an attack roll on, then we had an attack that did, that was just a saving throw with no attack roll because it's just like it was fog. It's like it's going to hit you no matter what. It's just a matter of whether or not you can resist it. This one, you have to hit them with it, and then the damage happens based on you hitting them. But then once you've hit them, there's the additional check of whether they get poisoned afterwards. So it can do two separate things, which is kind of neat. Shield. An invisible barrier of magical force appears and protects you. Until the start of your next turn, you have plus five bonus to AC including against the triggering attack, and take no damage from magic missile. 
So immunity to magic missiles interesting, but that's just like a side thing. But this is castable as a reaction. So all these other things are mostly actions, except for this, that running away ability I mentioned was a, was a bonus action. This is a reaction, meaning you can cast this when somebody is currently attacking you. So while somebody's attacking me, I can be like, voop, plus 5 AC, if, as a response to the idea that they're going to hit me. So if they're going to hit me, I can get plus 5 AC to counteract that attack and stop it from happening. But I'm essentially stopping hit point damage to, from happening to me by spending a spell. Because these are level 1 spells, this is not a cantrip. So it's very strong for protecting me, but it's very costly because every time, every it'll it'll give me five AC for that entire turn. So everyone, if everyone, if anyone else, anyone else attacks me that turn, they'll also that'll also happen with them. But it's still like it's just a it's just very costly. But I I used shield and uh, mage armor in my previous campaign as a sorcerer, and it made me very hard to kill, very hard to kill. Silent image. There's a ten minute spell. Concentration. It lasts 10 minutes. You create the image of an object, a creature, or some other visible phenomenon that's no larger than 15 foot cube. It's a long card text on this one. The image appears at a spot within range and lasts for the duration. The image is purely visual. It, can't, it isn't accompanied by sound, smell, or other sensory effects. You can use your action to cause the image to move to any spot within range. As the image changes location, you can alter its appearance so that its movements appear natural for the image. For example, if you create an image of a creature and move it, you can alter the image so that it appears to be walking. Physical interaction with the image reveals it to be an illusion uh, because things can pass through it. A creature that uses its action to examine the image can determine it's an illusion, and uh, if they realize it's an illusion, then they can see through it. Okay, here's a question. Silent image versus minor illusion. What the fuck is the difference? Oopsie. Because I'm actually a little confused now. Uh, silent image can be 60 feet away and la Oh, that's part of it. Minor illusion only lasts one minute and can be cast at 30 feet. Silent image can be cast at 60 feet and it lasts 10 minutes, but it requires concentration. Hmm. Oh yeah, you can't move it. I mixed it up with dancing lights. Minor illusion cannot be moved either. You just summon it and then it just sits there. And then you move on with your life, and then after a minute it goes away. Silent image you can continually sort of distract people with for like 10 minutes straight, potentially. Which could be useful. If you're trying to boogeyman people. Sleep! This will be another one of those hit point ones. Roll 5d8. The total is how many creatures can it can affect. Creatures within 20 feet of this point uh, are, beat, are made unconscious. Yeah, unless they take damage. That's pretty straightforward. Thunder wave. A wave of thunderous force sweeps out from you. Each creature within a 15-foot cube originating from you must make a constitution saving throw. On a failed save, the creature takes 2d8 thunder damage and is pushed 10 feet away from you. On a successful save, the creature takes half as much damage. In addition, unsecured objects that are completely within the area of, of effect are automatically pushed 10 feet away from you by the spell's effect. And it has an audible boom heard from 300 feet away. So this is the no subtlety spell. I've used this one a few times. It does 2d8 damage, which is alright. It's a big AoE. It's a 15 foot cube, which is not a radius. So that means it's just, it's just your cube, and it's just your square, and then all the squares around you on the map. It only has a radius of like 7 feet. 
But uh, 7.5 feet, yeah. But everyone gets pushed back 10 feet, so it's good crowd control, and it does damage. Uh, it does hit a every creature, including your allies, so be careful. But you can use it to like knock people off cliffs and do some make some mess. But also due to its lack of subtlety, it can attract every enemy within 300 feet. So, you know, don't do that. Witch Bolt is the last one. We've made it. A beam of crackling blue energy lances out towards a creature within a range, forming a sustained arc of lightning between you and the target. Make a ranged spell attack against the creature. On a hit, the target takes 1d12 lightning damage, and on each of your turns for the duration, you can use your action to deal 1d12 lightning damage to the target automatically. The spell ends if you use your action to do anything else. The spell also ends if the target is ever outside the spell's range or has a total cover from you. So... This one's an even bigger deck, and I get to pick two whole spells. Poor level one sorcerers. Woo-wee! Alright, back after going through those cards. Everything takes longer than you think it's gonna take. It's actually getting pretty late. I've been doing this for hours at this point. I, uh... Whoops. <laughs> uh... This became a project for today, apparently. Didn't really fully plan this out, I suppose. But I went with Firebolt. So I'll be able to launch a fire attack. It has, I, I think as, as much as I like poison spray as a concept, a lot of enemies have some resistance to uh, constitution attacks. And uh, it's not a very high save of only 14. So I think, I think I remember having a history of poison spray getting resisted a lot. And it's probably going to keep happening. So let's not do that. Firebolt's kind of a standard. Mage Hand, the ability to ma manipulate stuff at range. It can't be very heavy is the limitation, but I can cast it infinite times, just like Firebolt, which is my attack. Minor Illusion, create distractions or lies. Could, I feel like that could be useful. Friends, I just like the risk-reward of trying to manipulate somebody that potentially backfiring really heavily uh, if they, uh, after a minute or so. Like that could be really uh, scary, so that could be fun. Mage armor to keep me alive. Eight hour long defense spell. And then disguise self. I can transform into something else, which could be really useful, I think. And that lasts for an hour. So my, you'll notice my two level one spells are not attacks. So this, this could backfire potentially. But I'm going to have a defensive spell and a deceit spell for infiltration purposes or escape purposes. Uh, so I'm going to be relying on firebolt for attacking. Uh, as I get to higher level spells, I'll probably pick something else to attack, but for now, Firebolt being my one attack is gonna be it, and we'll see, we'll see how level one goes. That's gonna be what I have for starters. Why did I pick up the wand again? Okay. Let's get into meta magic, because that's the whole other weird element of sorcerers, which is neat. Sorcery points. That's, this, this, uh, this doesn't start until second level. Uh... At second level, we get sorcery points. We get two of them, and we can spend them on a variety of effects. One thing is you can use your sorcery points to get additional uh, spell casts. So at level two, I will have two sorcery points, and you can spend two sorcery points to cast one additional first level spell. So technically, I get a little bit more flexibility there. Uh, there, there's a budget for how many it costs. It costs three for second level spell, five for a third, six for a fourth, and seven for a fifth. So you eat into your sorcery points pretty quickly 
if you're trying to use them to cast additional spells, but they're there if you want them. Uh, but the main thing that's interesting is that uh, at third level, you unlock meta magic, and this is where the sorcery points really come in handy because you can do a bunch of different effects. And I need to pick which ones I want to learn from this list, but I don't have to do this till level three. But I want—I just want to get into this now. At third level, I get to pick two of these magic effects. Then I get a third one at level ten, and a fourth one at level seventeen. So I'm only going to get a few of these. And on any given spell, I can cast, I can use one of these effects on it. And I believe this costs, I think each one tells you how many sorcery points it costs actually, yeah. So there's a careful spell, which is when you cast a spell that forces other creatures to make a saving throw, you can protect some of those creatures from the spell's f full force. So basically if I'm casting like an area of effect spell, I can protect specific people from the spell if I want to and be careful. Uh, but you're kind of covering your own ass there at most. Uh, distant spell. When, uh, when you cast a spell that has a range of 5 feet or greater, you can spend one sorcery point to double the range of the spell. So 5 becomes 10, 30 becomes uh, 60. I think at one point I cast a firebolt that was supposed to have a range of 120, and I doubled its, its distance to be 240 feet, which was so astonishingly far that I was able to snipe with it. I was only a low-level sorcerer, so I could only do it like once. Because I only had like a couple of uses of spells and only a couple of uses of meta magic, but I was able to shoot a fireball a stupid range and hit somebody at that range. And I think it was kind of pivotal, pivotal, or maybe I just thought it was going to be pivotal and I missed or wasn't that effective or something, but it was a cool idea at least. But in addition, it makes the touch spell gain a range of 30 feet, which is what I was talking about earlier with that that story I had about the the bard in the previous in the in the like the storytelling episode or whatever. I don't I don't know I don't fully know how I'm going to format these videos cuz I haven't edited them yet, but uh that happened. Empowered spell. When you roll damage for a spell, you can spend one sorcery point to re-roll a number of damage dice up to your charisma modifier. And you must use the new rolls. So basically, it's a chance to re-roll. So I have a charisma modifier of four, so I could re-roll four dice in order to hopefully get better numbers the second time around. Extended spell. You can double the duration of any spell's duration. Whatever, however long it lasts, you double it uh, if it has duration of one minute or longer. Up to a maximum of 24 hours. Heightened spell. Cast a spell that forces a creature to make a saving throw to resist its effects. You can spend three sorcery points to give the, the give one target of the spell disadvantage on its saving throw. So you just make it way more likely for them to fail at the save. Kind of expensive, those three sorcery points. The other ones have all cost one. That means you can't even cast Heightened Spell at level... Oh, you don't get this until level three anyway. So you would have four sorcery points by that, that point, I think. A Quicken Spell. You can change a one action spell into a one bonus action spell, meaning it doesn't take up your turn. You can just quick draw that shit and then I'll, then still spend your turn on something else, which is neat. Which I think means you could also just spend that turn casting the spell a second time. Just get that spell out in two, twice in one turn. Subtle spell. When you cast a spell, you can spend one sorcery point to cast it without any somatic or verbal components. That's the one I talked about before, where you can cast a spell without making any noise or having to move your hands which could be useful if you're bound for example or gagged or can't speak or you're trying to do it quietly 
Wind spell. When you cast a spell that targets only one creature and doesn't have any range of self, you can spend a number of sorcery points equal to the spell's level to target a second creature in range of the spell. That's neat. You can multi-target a single target spell. So those are useful. So that's the basics. Uh, so the, some, that doesn't come up until level... So you get sorcery points at level 2, but at that point they only just count for being able to cast extra spells. Then level 3 is when you get meta magic. That's when things are going to start getting weird. But right from day 1, we start off with uh, our sorceress origin. There's two types of sorcerers in this game. There's the draconic bloodline, which I'm not going to be... Uh, so I'm not going to get into that very much, but that's a whole thing you can get into. It's this element where you have a you have a series of in both of these versions you get a series of effects that are added to your character when you get when you reach certain levels, and and uh, they just have different outcomes. You for a draconic bloodline you essentially become more and more dragon like over time, to the point where at level 14 you gain wings, which is amusing. There's a few neat effects, but I I love wild magic not only because it's a fun idea, but because it fits with my 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 explanation for my characters becoming what they are and getting the power that they have. Wild magic is when you have really poor control of your magic, or you're just or maybe you're just embracing chaos for fun or whatever, and what and this is enabled from level one is it's immediately part of the game, and uh, you don't have to wait until later levels like these other effects we've been talking about. What happens is that if I cast any spell that is level any spell that is level one or higher, so just any spell that's not a cantrip, the dungeon master can have me roll wild magic. What happens then is I roll a d20, and if it rolls a one, then something happens. And if I roll anything else, then we just keep going on with our lives. It's just a chance of crazy, weird shit going down. And uh, the very next page is just this giant table of all the things that can happen if uh if, if wild magic happens it's the it's called the wild magic surge and you roll a d100 which is the ten, the one in tens uh 10 dice and then you get a number and based on what number comes up a variety of things happen some of them are good some of them are bad some of them are an explosion some of them are a transfiguration some of them turn me into something some of them make a variety of just strange things happen uh, just across the board, all sorts of strange things can happen. So that'll be fun. I'll leave those all up as being surprises until they happen. But uh, that's neat. But then what also happens is I have Tides of Chaos. This is where I get more aggressive with the wild magic thing. Because normally when I cast a spell, it only has... We only roll wild magic when the DM tells me to, the Dungeon Master. And even then, it's only if I roll a 1 when they ask me a check by rolling. But uh, if I do Tides of Chaos, I can use I can have any I can have I can have advantage on any check, one attack roll, one ability check, or one saving throw. I have advantage, which means I roll two dice and take the bigger number. That's my power of using Tides of Chaos. Is I can use I can get advantage in in checks that are in my favor. But. The DM then has the ability to just say, go ahead and roll on the wild magic surge table after that, after I do that. 
anytime I cast a single uh, spell that is level one or higher. So once I use Tides of Chaos, like maybe I'm doing a constitution save just so I don't get poisoned or whatever, and I do Tides of Chaos because I really don't want to get poisoned, so I, I'm really like wanting it hard. And for my roleplay perspective, I'm playing a character that potentially doesn't even fully understand the system exists, so they just are just trying to use their sorceress power to their advantage, and so they will use Tides of Chaos in a number of situations just to, like, do better at the thing they're trying to do, basically. Uh, but once I use Tides of Chaos, the next time I cast any level 1 spell or higher, anything that's not a cantrip, the Dungeon Master can immediately make me roll in the wild, uh, the wild Surge table to make one of those effects happen. And there's no longer that check for it for me having to roll a 1 on a d20. Now it's just the next spell I cast, basically. Which admittedly won't be super common early on because I only have two total. So I might not even use them after that or whatever. But but uh, it'll be interesting. And uh, a few different effects happen over time. Let's see, at level 6, I gain Bend Luck. Yeah, bend luck. I can spend two sorcery points to add or subtract a d4 to somebody else's check. So, like, if somebody does some kind of check, I can change the outcome of what they're doing, either making my allies better at doing something or making the enemy worse at doing something. Uh, but I have to spend sorcery points to do it, so that's fun. And then in controlled chaos, whenever I roll on the wild surge table, I get to roll twice and. And I get to pick which of the two things happens between those two results, which is a little bit of control, but not a, not a ton. It could still be two bad things or whatever. And then Spell Bombardment's level 18. I've never even had a character that high of a level before, so let's not hold our breath too hard. Let's, read, let's, spell, let's spell this out because I'm not sure what I'm reading here. Beginning at 18 level, the harmful energy of your spells intensifies. When you roll damage for a spell and roll the highest number possible on any of the dice, choose one of those dice, roll it again, and add that roll to the damage. You can use this feature only once per turn. Whoa. That's interesting. So, like, if you roll, like, six dice for a fireball spell and one of those, just even one of those is a six... You can roll that that dice again and add that to the total you already had, getting an extra dice, essentially. That's interesting. Not necessarily a game changer, but it's neat. I guess it could be pretty badass, actually, if you're rolling, like, D12s or something. Hmm. That's the end of sorcery. <sighs> We're almost there. Now I just need to deal with being tabaxi, which is not in this book. The player handbook only handles the first nine races, so I need to use this document that I'm borrowing from Marty in order to read about the tabaxi, which I don't even fully understand yet, and I hope it's really interesting, because even I don't fully know what the tabaxi are. I just want to try a new race out. I'm like, oh, cat people. I can play as a Khajiit. Isn't that fun? In fact, this is the avatar I'm currently using. You can see it down here for my character. Uh, I might do custom... If we get really into this, I might, like, get commissions of, like, custom art for the various party members in our group or something. But until then, I'm using this... It's actually just an image of a Khajiit. It's from, like... El I think it's called Elder... It might have been called Elder Scrolls Legends? 
It's an Elder Scrolls thing that isn't any of the main games and isn't the card and I mean isn't and isn't the MMO. It might have been the card game. I don't remember. But fittingly, it's it's definitely a Khajiit picking up what I assume is the Elder one of the Elder Scrolls, like the titular Elder Scrolls. Uh rather I I specifically wanted to find video game art for my character until I have better art just because I didn't want to accidentally use somebody else's like deviant art art or whatever and like rip off like a random artist like i don't know it, it feels better to use video game art because it's meant it's actually it's, it's not it's not a personal piece it's like a it's already a commercial piece so it, it feels less iffy to do that but i don't know this is all a weird gray area that some people fuss about because it's a youtube series if you're some random person playing a random game of D in the privacy with your friends it's really common practice just to grab any art you can find online and just use that uh because it's just for you guys but i'm doing an online series so i didn't i wanted to not use uh art from some random person on twitter or deviant art without even knowing about it so image searches are risky because you get a lot of people's personal artwork and i don't want to get the messages about that generally speaking so i uh went with elder scrolls specifically and fittingly, this image almost could be interpreted as being the moment my character accidentally became a sorcerer because it, he looks rather concerned and he seems to be holding a distressing object that might have been the source of his power. Like this might have been the thing that accidentally infused him with the power that he's got right now and so on. So that's interesting. I guess I could just leave this image up for now. I should have I should have had this image up this whole time probably instead of that character sheet that I wasn't interacting with. I don't I didn't plan this out fully. I didn't necessarily know what images to show on the live. I'm not a live streamer generally speaking that does like non-gaming streams where you try to figure out what to show on the screen. Uh, so I'm a little I'm not really in the practice for this, but I kind of thought I'd be editing my document more actively. But I'm I've just been spending all this time getting you guys caught up on the process up until what I've already done. Uh, but I did now finally pick my spells, which is technically like the most time-consuming part of this entire process, and I still haven't done that, so I'm glad to have that behind me now. But going forward, I'll finally be adding stuff to the document, hopefully. But as you see on the document, I go back. Uh, I did already have these things added in. You have spell casting. Dude can cast spells, yo. I have an explanation for wild magic, wild magic surge, tides of chaos. It's very handy that you can increase and decrease the sizes of these and so on that's nice of them to give us that level of control over the stuff so that's nice oh yeah and as far as why he's named uh uh thunder in the morning this is how tabaxi names work we can read this right here actually tabaxi are feline humanoids with uh i need to scroll this over slightly not gonna quite fit either way is it Ah, uh, whatever. Just trust me. Uh, tabaxi are feline humanoids with a curiosity as strong as that of real-life cats, but fueled further by their more intelligent minds. The tabaxi will travel incredibly far for their uh, if their desire takes them, but most tabaxi tend to stick with their homelands and clans. But unlike some adventurers and world explorers, the tabaxi favor knowledge above all other treasures. Of course, a tabaxi will still gladly find a chest of gold, but only so they can uncover... The stories behind these treasures. They need only enough gold to survive. Anything more is considered to be an unnecessary burden to carry around. Tabaxi names are tribal in name. 
names like Kite in the Wind, Ethereal Candle, Thunder in the Morning, for example. <laughs> I couldn't get past that fucking name. Uh, these names are unisex and are given based on many elements, including astrology and the history of the individual's clan. The names often lead to shortened nicknames, which I've added in brackets behind each name. So this is the randomizer. Like this is just a bunch of examples. Rays of the sun, blank canvas, stripes of a tiger, blossoms in summer, stitch of fabric, grand wing, vibrant mask, bubble of a cauldron, tome of secrets, dynamic trick, bizarre quilt, kite in the wind, second chance, rare cart, serene song, sixth thunder, veil of a mask, top card, dynamic carriage. They're, they're odd names, to say the least. Uh, but that's what we got as a tabaxi. And so that's that's why I'm currently called Thunder in the Morning. I actually didn't realize it was in the sample text right here. I just, I was randomizing a lot. And I think I might have come up at some point. Lightning after Thunder. Uh, there it is, Thunder in the Morning. Uh, it, it might be in the book here, actually, if I look at the names part or something. But uh, I just want, I just felt like, I, I put it there as a placeholder while I was continuing to try to think of new names. And that's. It's just I, I, it's just I get a kick out of that name. It's a funny name for a character, so I might keep it. I'm not sure. Uh, you're welcome to suggest names in the comments since I have until Saturday when the first game happens, so the name could still change. But I've uh, enjoyed the idea so far. Funnily enough, uh, Tabaxi is right after Lizard Folk in the uh, in this monster manual. So it's like I'm just picking the next creature on the list from the one that I played last time I did a YouTube series. Funny that. So fitting, this quote's kind of fitting actually. That, that other description, we'll see what the source of that one was, if it's from this book or not, but uh, there is thieving right in the first intro about a tabaxi. The first thing it says is, We had a tabaxi come through once, a few winters back. She kept the tap room packed each night with her stories and spent most days napping in a chair in front of the fireplace. We thought she was lazy, but when Lenin came around looking for a missing brooch, she was out the door before I could blink an eye. Which definitely sounds like the tabaxi stole that brooch. Uh, it might be because of this inherent desire for stories and artifacts as opposed to riches themselves, but... You definitely have a tabaxi thieving in the first description you get here. It says, Hailing from a strange and distant land, wandering tabaxi are cat-like humanoids driven by curiosity to collect inter interesting artifacts, gather tales and stories, and lay eyes on all the world's wonders. Ultimate travelers, the inquisitive tabaxi rarely stay in one place for long. Their innate nature pushes them to leave no secrets uncovered, no treasures or legends lost. I gotta dig into these details. It's hard. I can't. I can't really skim this because it's actually pretty succinct. Succinct. St succinct. There we go. Uh, wandering outcasts, most tabaxi remain in their distant homeland, content to dwell in small, tight clans. These tabaxi hunt for food, craft goods, and largely keep to themselves. However, not all tabaxi are satisfied with such a life. The cat lord, the, the divine figure responsible for the creation of the tabaxi. Uh, gifts each of its children with one specific feline trait. Those tabaxi gifted with curiosity are compelled to wander far and wide. They seek out stories, artifacts, and lore. Those who survive this period of wanderlust return home in, in their elder years to share news of the outside world. In this manner, the tabaxi remain isolated but never ignorant of the world beyond their home. So basically, any of the tabaxi you see in a in a 
That's that's interesting. Any any tobacco you see in like an RPG party, adventuring party, is essentially the specific ones that are gifted with this trait of curiosity that is distinct from many other tabaxi apparently because each yeah each one of them gets one specific trait which i think i think they're saying that they that that trait's not always curiosity so when you if you go back home to where tabaxi are from you'll get a bunch of tabaxi that all have different personalities or different setups that are distinctly different from the ones that actually go out on adventures because those ones are actually weird in a weird way this is like bilbo baggins you're like the one weirdo that wants to go on an adventure and everyone else just wants to stay put and do these other things barterers of lore tabaxi treasure knowledge rather than material things a chest filled with gold coins might be useful to buy food or coal of rope but it's not intrinsically interesting but in the tabaxi's eyes gathering wealth is like packing rations for a long trip it's important to survive the world but not worth fussing over Instead, tabaxi value knowledge and new experiences. Their ears perk up in a busy tavern. They tease out stories and offers of, uh, with offers of food, drink, and coin. Tabaxi might walk away with empty purses, but they mull over the stories and rumors they collected like a miser collecting coins. So I wonder if I need to roleplay my characters being addicted to stories, essentially, or information, so I always want to steal riches so that i can then trade them for their things or maybe it's just why i'm after or maybe i'm just specifically after relics i'm trying to think of my character a little bit now with this new information maybe it's that i was a smuggler because the smuggling was always useful for stories and lore and all that but then i couldn't resist not opening the uh this relic that sorcelled me uh because that it was forbidden knowledge. Of course I had to look at it. I couldn't not look at it, of course. That's like why I'm here. I want these kinds of information. And then curiosity killed the cat. Or in this case, curiosity turned the cat into a, a sorcerer and then gave him a a bit of a debt. So maybe my character was less greedy before and they were more particular about needing information and wanting to do you know this lore-finding thing. Uh, but because they... Because they were too curious this one time, they couldn't help it, and now now they owe money, and so now now my character's a thief, not because they are specifically greedy, but because they need to repay the the deadly debt that I have to the, what caused me to be a sorcerer in the first place. Because some character, I need, there's some figure I need to invent that I owe money to. Uh, that's dangerous. Uh, maybe I'll come up with someone myself, or maybe I'll talk with Effie, and we'll come up with a in-universe character that already exists maybe even maybe either one she makes up or one that maybe already exists in this storyline that uh can be the reason for my my thieving we'll see although material wealth holds little attraction for the tabaxi they have an insatiable desire to find and inspect ancient relics magical items and other rare objects except from the power such items might confer a tabaxi takes great joy in unraveling the stories behind their creation and the history of their use so my backstory of accidentally uh, cursing myself or whatever fits way better as a tabaxi than it did before when I was a, a tiefling. Or maybe it fit tiefling too. I, didn't, I don't know if I read that much about tieflings. Or I don't remember that right now. Now. Hmm. I'm really amused by the idea that there's a cat lord. Leading fancies. 
Wandering tabaxi are mercurial creatures, trading one obsession or passion for the next on the whi- as the whim strikes. A tabaxi's desire burns bright, but once met, it disappears to be replaced with a new obsession. Objects remain intriguing only as long as they still hold secrets. A tabaxi rogue could happily spend months plotting to steal a strange gem from a noble only to trade it for passage on a ship or a week's lodging after stealing it. Ah... So this is another thing, is we can explain my thieving as being this obsession with taking things whenever there is a challenge or a denial about it, like some sort of reason why it's like forbidden to me. But then once I have it, I'm no longer interested in it. Oh, uh, this is this could be fun. This could be a fun character to play. This this could be a real weird mess of self-destructive behaviors, <laughs> which is the best type to have in D and D sometimes. The Tabaxi might make extensive notes and memorize every facet of the gem before passing it on, but the gem holds no more allure once its secrets and nature have been laid bare. Tinkers and Mistrels Curiosity drives most of the Tabaxi uh, found outside of the homeland, but not all of them become adventurers. Tabaxi who seek a safer path to satisfy their obsessions become wandering tinkers and minstrels. Uh, That probably won't be me. These tabaxi work in small troop, usually consisting of an elder, more experienced tabaxi, who guide up to the up to four young ones. This isn't. I'm gonna skip past this because it's just not real, real. It's not what kind of character I'm gonna be for sure. Tabaxi names. Each tabaxi has a single name determined by the clan and based on a complex formula that involves astrology, prophecy, clan history, and other esoteric factors. The tabaxi names can apply to both male and female, and most use nicknames derived from or inspired by their full names. Yeah. The examples given in the book are Cloud on the Mountaintop, Five Timber, Jade Shoe, Left-Handed Hummingbird, Seven Thundercloud, Skirt of Snakes, or Smoking Mirror. Okay. So the example, so the, okay, so I was, I was a little worried that I was picking the most generic possible name because the randomizer used it in its text, but I think it was just more randomized names and they used examples from that because it's at least, it's, it's at least not an example from the textbook. I was worried it was going to be an example from the actual book and I'm like, oh no, I've over generic. Still, I've, I've, I've gotten too used to the name. It's like that idea of like, there's no, there's nothing more temper there's no, nothing more permanent than something that's temporary. Usually people mean there's nothing more permanent than a temporary solution, but there's also the application of like there's nothing more te- permanent than like a temporary name. Uh, a lot of authors I've heard of have referred to the fact that like they name their characters something temporarily, just so they have a placeholder name to refer to that character while they're writing the story, and then they can go back and replace that name throughout the entire book if they want to, but then they find that they can never change the name. Specifically, the person I'm referring to is, is a Hank Green says that about like <clears throat> everyone was, everyone in his book, an absolutely remarkable thing was supposed to have temporary names and they were going to change them later because it's not good that like he has multiple characters that have that start with the same letter, for example. Uh, but then he just couldn't imagine them being anybody else because he'd written the story with those names. Whereas John Green, I think, said he can just change the names. No big deal. He doesn't give a shit. Uh, so some back and forth there. But like I've had a, I've had a temporary name and now I don't know if I can change them. Tabaxi personality. A tabaxi might have motivations and quirks much different from a dwarf or elf with a similar background. You can use the following tables to customize your character in addition to that trait. Uh, in addition to the trait, ideal, bond, or flaw from your background, tabaxi obsession table can help hone your character's goals. For extra fun, roll a new result every few days. 
that passed in the campaign to reflect your ever-changing curiosity. Uh, that's fun. So Tapaxi Obsessions. My, cu my curiosity is currently fixated on a god or planar entity, a monster, a lost civilization, a wizard's secrets, a mundane item, a magic item, a location, or a legend or tale. Then quirks. The D10. You miss your tropical home and complain endlessly about the freezing weather, even in summer. You never wear the same outfit twice unless you absolutely must. You have a minor phobia of water and hate getting wet. Your tail always betrays your inner thoughts. That'd be a problem for me. You purr loudly when you are happy. You keep a small ball of yarn in your hand, which you constantly fidget with. You are always in debt, but since you spend your gold on lavish, uh, you're always in, de in debt since you spend your gold on lavish parties and gifts for friends. When talking about something you're obsessed with, you speak quickly and never pause. Now those others can understand you. Okay, I feel personally attacked. You are a font of random trivia from the lore and stories you have discovered. And you can't help but pocket interesting objects you come across. Ooh. Well, one of these is definitely more fitting. Hmm. <laughs> I think, it, I think it recommends picking a quirk, but then you could like re-roll your obsession every day if you wanted, every few days if you wanted to, because the obsession is just a current thing you're fixated on, whereas the quirks are more permanent character traits. You wouldn't want to change those every few days. That'd be too weird. So here's what surprised me. Tabaxi, I thought they were going to be like Kenku. I thought they were going to be little things, but they're actually taller than normal. They're taller than the average human, the, but they're slender, but not much t taller. They're still a medium person. But yeah, they're a bit taller than humans. I thought they'd, I thought they're gonna be little cat people like kobolds and kenku, but uh, apparently not. They have uh, normal speed. They have dark vision, which means they can see for sixty feet without light, which is useful. Feline agility. Your reflexes and, ag and agility allow you to move with a burst of speed. When you move on your turn in combat, you can double your speed until the end of the turn. Once you use this trait, you can't use it again until you move zero feet on one of your turns. Oh, right. I didn't fully explain uh, the Tides of Chaos earlier. If I use the Tides of Chaos as a sorcerer to give myself advantage on a roll, and then the, uh, the, the one reason the Dungeon Master might not want to give me, to force me to roll on the Wild Magic Table is that every time he forces me to roll on the Wild Magic Table, I then regain Tides of Chaos and can use it again and again and again every time he, every time it happens. So we can get into a little bit of a game of chicken there with a lot of wild magic things and a lot of Tides of Chaos. Uh, but if he does not make me roll on the Wild Magic Table, then Tides of Chaos does not come back uh, until I rest. Let's see. When you move on your turn in combat, you can double your speed, but you can't use it again until you move zero feet on one of your turns. That's interesting. I think it means you can move double speed without using uh, sprint or whatever it was called, where you have to use your whole turn running. 
So you can get a, you can get around unusually fast. I think that means that if you do do a sprint or whatever the correct word was that I forgot already, I think you might be able to run 120 feet in one turn without if you aren't attacking or using other actions. But you only get it back by standing still. It's supposed to even it out a bit, but like you could cover some ground. God damn. And that's I gotta yeah I'll have to add that to my character sheet to be clear. That's interesting. Cat's claws. Because of your claws, you can climb. You have a climbing speed of 20 feet. So you can climb a wall at two-thirds the speed you normally traverse the ground. In addition, your claws are natural weapons, which you can use to do unarmed strikes. You do slashing damage of 1d4 plus your strength modifier. So, if only I had strength modifier, because mine's zero. Otherwise, I could potentially be kind of strong with unarmed attacks. Cat's talent. You're proficient with perception and stealth skills. There we go. Uh, perception. And stealth. Those are very useful things for the particular type of character I'm making. So being able to make both of those... I gotta move this over again. Boop. Being able to... Uh, having a webcam on the screen is bad for my formatting. <laughs> so now, I, now I'm proficient in deception, insight, perception, and stealth. Thank you, Cat's Talent. I can speak and read common and one other language of my choice. So I get to pick another one. And that appears to be... Oops. I skipped over some of this on accident because it was formatted slightly differently. Because uh, there's a picture. Ability score increase. I get two dexterity and one charisma. We knew that. Uh, age. Tabaxi have a lifespan equivalent to humans. So I have a normal lifespan. Alignment. Tabaxi tend towards chaotic alignments, as they let impulse and fancy guide their decisions. They are rarely evil, with most of them driven by curiosity rather than greed or other dark impulses. That'll be fun. Hmm. So my character is most likely to be chaotic. Probably chaotic neutral. He's probably a little thief that's up to no good, but mostly because he's obsessed and gives into these urges and curiosities constantly. So that'll lead to some fun, self-destructive actions. Uh, I actually don't have that much to change about my character sheet. If you're taken aback by how little character sheet managing we're doing, it's because there's it's a because the basic setup you do isn't that hard. The main thing I have to do is I need to add all of my spells to my character sheet, which will take a little bit. Let's see. I think you might be able to search these. So like, boop, 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 boop. firebolt. So we'll try this. I haven't done this yet, so let's move my portrait down. I think I can just move Firebolt directly here into... There we go! Oh, isn't that good? Mage Hand. <gasps> isn't this the cool... I've never done this before. But this is super handy. For being able to quickly pivot these things into my spell book. So, Minor Illusion. Friends. Alright, Friends is not there. So that's not good. That's fine, I'll just, uh... I'll just double check that later. And if I can't find it... If I can't figure out what... Maybe, maybe it's called something else in this engine or something. 
this guy itself. Alright, so let's shrink all these. There we go. So you, you click the information button and it shrinks down to being just a name. So these are all here, so I can click on the information icon and I'll get the full context of how the spell works. I didn't have to type any of that in. Uh, if I can't find friend... Animal friendship, yeah, that's not helpful. Uh, we'll see. If I can't, I'll just have to add that manually, which will be fine. It just means I need to type all that information out myself, basically, and then I'll have uh, that spell added in here. So that's 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 relatively intuitive. And here you go. It conveniently tells you this is your spellcasting stat. You're a charisma spellcaster because you're because you're a a uh, sorcerer. Your save your save is fourteen, and your spell attack bonus is six. So when I attack with charisma, I add six to my number, and when I do a save, then I need fourteen. And I think if I click on it, I might be able to do. Why'd that happen? Okay, so if I click on a spell, it casts immediately. So if I click Firebolt, ba-boom! Uh, I think it's just saying the attack? Yeah. 1d20. So 14, okay. How do I roll its attack? Uh, we'll get into this later, but uh, I just, I, oops, there it goes again. It seems to, yeah, I'll, I'll need to spend some time with roll 20 to figure this out, but it seems to only be rolling an attack. So I did an attack of 20 and I did an attack of 18. Because that's the that's a dice roll plus six in both cases, but it didn't show damage, so I might have to modify that. That's probably a custom thing that I can do there, but that's not something to do while I'm recording, so that's something for later. Aren't we all having fun? All right, you can't see that past the portrait. I'm good at this. I'm good at this. Who's gonna sit through all this? I have no idea. <laughs> but more context. I mean, I, I mean probably similar to the people that are going to sit through the potentially dozens or hundreds of hours of actual D&D &D episodes, I suppose. So at this point, I pretty much am set. So here's my character sheet. So what I need to do is I need to type out information here, like uh, any distinctive information about his appearance or like his backstory and, and stuff in his inventory particular traits that I get. I think I need to look into quirks, so, so I'll look into that in a minute. But that's 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 the that's the 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 gist of it. You just kind of add these details as you go. The stats are really the biggest thing. You, you once you've picked your character and your class and your spells if you have spells and then your uh and you have your stats rolled out, that's kind of the big thing. Everything else is just context of how it all works. Alright, we're on the home stretch. I was considering not doing this today and doing it later, but I think I'm going to use a template a little bit for this part. Because uh, I, I was looking through it and I found one that's kind of fitting, I think. Uh, artwork, come back. <laughs> the uh, So we need to fill in the personality trait, ideals, bonds, and flaws. I'm not going to do this on screen like the 
the grunt work part of it because that'll just take too long. So we'll skip past that part for now. Oh, hey, there's the firebolt. how it works nope still don't understand how this works I just noticed that my attack spell firebolt shows up on the front page and I'm like oh can I attack with it <laughs> I thought maybe I could click on the attack part and the damage part to do attack and damage separately but it seems to only calculate your attack roll and not attack and not damage I don't know I'll learn how to do roll 20 later it's fine it's fine it's fine but anyway, uh, the, the idea here is you want to you figure out your background, and I think you're able to basically come up with anything, technically. Uh, like you're basically able to come up with whatever you want, ever. Or you probably can like hash it out with your dungeon master and so on. But generally speaking, I just go with the template. I'm going to skip past height and weight calculations. You can calculate one by picking them out yourself or by uh, rolling dice for them. I'm bad at judging height and weight, or specifically how heavy someone's supposed to be for a certain height, so I, I, I don't know, maybe later. Uh, but as far as all of my alignments go, I'm definitely not lawful, uh, both because I'm a cat and because I'm a smuggler. So those two things combine to being, I'm definitely either chaotic or neutral. The fact that I'm actively a criminal means I'm probably chaotic. Also the fact that I'm a cat, because they're I think it said that they're also chaotic, the tabaxi. So my choices are basically chaotic neutral or chaotic good. The descriptions for chaotic good is creatures act as their conscious direct uh, as their conscience directs with little regard for what others expect. And then it says that some these particular people tend to be chaotic good. Uh, being a smuggler, I don't think I'm actively engaging with a conscience necessarily with my motivations. But I'm not evil. I'm not malevolent. I'm just. A nuisance, I suppose, as a character. So chaotic neutral probably is right. Creatures follow their whims, holding their personal freedom above all else. That's, uh, as it even says, many barbarians and rogues, and some bards are chaotic neutral. So I think we can pretty reliably say that I'm going to be chaotic neutral. Where is my alignment? Where is my alignment on the sheet? Oh no, I can't find it. Subclass? I, I thought it used to be up here. Oh well, I've said it out loud so you guys know what I mean. I'll I'll enter it when I figure out where it is on the sheet. <laughs> uh, not, the, not really the top priority right now. Yeah. Uh, languages. I kind of want to have a thing with, uh, with Andrew's character. If I'm being honest. Which I'm pretty sure is a halfling. So given these languages, their standard languages are common. Yeah, halflings on the list. Because they said they said I get to have two languages. Uh, I think I just want to learn halfling. Yeah, because then I can communicate directly with Andrew's character, which could be interesting because he's playing as a uh, a halfling bard that's the heir to the a brothel chain or something so that it could be interesting what we, have, we probably have a similar alignment and might be able to work together specifically we're gonna have a lawful good paladin that we have to manipulate sometimes and get around so if we can uh talk to each other and he can't understand then we might be able to do some uh scheming behind his back so that's probably a good idea I'm going to be uh, chaotic neutral who can speak common and halfling. 
Isn't this fun? And specifically, so that when you're picking uh, backgrounds, I think you can customize these things to be like practically anything, and you can come up with your own things. But there's a there's a whole chapter of suggestions in here, and I'm going off of that. One of them is to be an acolyte, which is like a, like part of a a religious temple and so on. You can be a charlatan, which is somebody who that actively defrauds people in, on an individual basis. Then there's a criminal, more broad. That one actually contains the subset smuggler, so you can tell where I'm going. There's entertainer, which is probably where Andrew's going. There's a guild artisan. Uh, there's a hermit. There's an outlander. And a sailor. An urchin. A soldier. I might have even skipped some while I was going through there. But uh, there's a bunch of those. Each of these has its own table. One is the special table about what kind of person they are. For me, there's specialty. You can be a blackmailer, a burglar, an enforcer, a fence, a highway robber, a hired killer, a pickpocket, and a smuggler. I could actually be a smuggler or a fence. Because I could have been a fence that fucked up and opened it. But no, that's too indirect. I think I want to be a smuggler still because it's like the idea that I was supposed to smuggle this thing and I screwed up. So that part's fine. Uh, personality trait. These are all interesting. So it's like... I always have a plan for what to do when things go wrong, or I am calm no matter what the situation. I never raise my voice or let my emotions control me, or the first thing I do in the new place is note the locations of everything valuable, or where such things could be hidden. Uh, I would rather make a new friend than a new enemy. I'm incredibly slow to, tr to trust those who seem the fairest often have the most to hide. I don't pay attention to the risks of the situation, never tell me the odds. Or, the best way to get me to do something is to tell me I can't do it. That's gonna be mine. That's gonna be mine. <laughs> or, I blow up with the slightest insult. So there's my personality trait, is that telling me I can't have something just makes me want it more, which fits with the tabaxi thing pretty well. Uh, my ideal. These ideals are all aligned, by the way. Honor. I don't steal from others in the trade. Lawful. You see, you see can't be lawful good, because you're, uh, you're, you're a criminal. So the best you can be is lawful. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could be lawful good in some bizarre way. What they're, what they're doing here that's interesting is that you're saying you don't steal from others in the trade, making you lawful. But weirdly, it makes you a different kind of lawful because you're inherently a criminal. It's just you obey the laws of criminals, interestingly. Perspective and all that. Freedom. Chains are meant to be broken, as are those who would forge them. That might be mine. Charity. I steal from the wealthy so I can give them to the people in, in, in need. Good. So it's lawful, then chaotic, and then good. Greed. I will do whatever it takes to become wealthy. Evil. People. I'm loyal to my friends, not to ideals. And anyone, and everyone else can take a, a trip down the sticks for all I care. Neutral. Redemption. There's a spark of good in everyone, which is good. So you get lawful, chaotic, good. Evil, neutral, good. So they're all alignment related across the board. So a, a pretty a pretty easy one is just to make yourself lo uh, have the ideal of people, which means you're loyal to your friends above all else, which means you're really good at being in a party of adventurers in an in a RPG. So on a meta level, very easy ideal to pick. I, I like the idea of freedom, though. Chains are meant to be broken, as are those who would forge them. You might be motivated to cause some mischief for, say, slavers or something like that when you see them being what they are, and so on. That might be an ideal to go for. Bond. I'm trying to pay off an old debt I owe to a generous benefactor. 
or my ill-gotten game I my ill-gotten gains go to support my family or something important was taken from me and I aim to steal it back or I will become the greatest thief that ever lived the it's one piece shit <laughs> or I'm guilty of a terrible crime I hope I can redeem myself for it or someone I loved died because of a mistake I made that will never happen again so I'm gonna I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna modify one of these because uh, in, in fact what, what what comes to mind here is I definitely made my my tiefling was definitely a criminal uh, and I definitely already thought of this backstory by modifying one of these I'm gonna take the I'm trying to pay off an old debt to a, I owe to a generous benefactor and I'm just gonna replace that with uh, I'm gonna get rid of the generous benefactor part and just keep the debt part I owe a great debt because I accidentally destroyed something I was supposed to smuggle and became a sorcerer in the process that part that little modification I'm pretty sure that'll fly just fine uh, I'll talk to Effie about how he wants to handle skill proficiencies. Uh, a criminal give, makes you proficient in deception and stealth. I'm already proficient in both deception and stealth. Deception from being... Uh, well, I guess I can I can re-pick one of my sorcerer proficiencies because I'll get deception from this. But I think stealth was intrinsic to being a tabaxi, so that's going to be wasted. But uh, yeah, I can just pick a different sorcerer one, actually. Do, 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 do. I thankfully bookmarked this. As a sorcerer, you get Arcana, Deception, Insight, Intimidation, Persuasion, and Religion. So I can remove Deception because it's going to be part of being a criminal. And I can switch to like... Probably Persuasion. It's just another Charisma stat. Another interaction thing where I can... I can just ace these interactions where I try to get people to do what I want or trick them because there's a difference per, uh, persuasion is not dishonest you're just trying to get people to do what you want them to do deception is dishonest you're trying to make them believe something they don't believe or trick them to your own benefits so it doesn't hurt to be good at both whereas arcana being good at arcana would actually be out of character to some extent so that wouldn't really quite fit. Could be good at intimidation, though. Yeah, do I want persuasion or intimidation? Hmm. <laughs> mm, I think I'll st I think I'll stick with persuasion for a moment. I'm not aggressively violent necessarily so far, but I can probably make intimidation work. Uh. We'll see if if Effie wants me to pick an additional trait because of the fact that I have duplication between uh, Tabaxi and because uh, he, he was talking to somebody about this before. I have a duplicate trait between my background and being a Tabaxi, so he might let me pick another sorcerer specialization, and I might get intimidation out of that. But we'll see. That's the basic stuff. So as a criminal, I get deception and stealth. I get a basic gaming set of thieves tools. Uh, and a crowbar, and some dark clothes, and 15 gold pieces. And that's about it. Oh yeah, and I get criminal contact. Uh, you have a reliable and trustworthy contact who acts as your liaison to a network of other criminals. You know how to get messages to and from your contract. 
even over great distances. Specifically, you know the local messengers, corrupt tar- uh, caravan ma- masters, and seedy sailors who can deliver messages for you. <clears throat> so we'll have a criminal underworld connection like Sherlock Holmes in the in the bad Sherlock show. Uh, but this should be interesting. So I'll fill this all in, and just like that, I got most of a character. I got a couple more details I might have to fill in here and there, and you know, some of this might be subject to changes I just feel about this character, but yeah. Ta-da! Uh, let, be, feel free to, I mean, don't be a dick about it, but feel free to, like, point out in the comments if I got this or that detail wrong and you want to, like, just dissuade things for people. Uh, if you're curious about role-playing, you could ask questions in the comments and maybe a future person who's, who is helpful could, like, respond to you and you can talk back and forth and maybe get into role-playing and stuff like that. Uh... Potentially, people in the community could even form their own Roll20 groups and play together. Like, maybe joining the Discord or something like that would give you the information you need to be able to communicate. Like, because we have a Discord. Uh, you can find the link in the description of most videos on this channel. There's a Discord server that we use here. Uh, and you could always use the voice chat of the Discord as the voice chat for your, like, Roll20 group or whatever if you wanted to. Uh, that kind of stuff. There's options, although honestly, hosting a bunch of individual RPG groups in my own thing is a bit, it's, it's, I don't know. It's more like you can meet each other, either in the comments or the Discord, but then make your own Discord server where you actually organize this stuff, because organizing a D&D campaign is a lot. You want to have like a bunch of text channels and voice chats all active on top of the Roll20 stuff, so like, it's just best to like, you know have your own server instead of asking me to make like a new chat channel for each individual roleplay group that wants to join uh because i have declined that in the past when somebody asked about that i'm like you can you can make your own discord server it's free if you can get your group from this one but then you know you can recruit from within the community and and meet up with each other but you don't need to have your own individual sub channel necessarily but you're welcome to use the voice chat if you want to uh as always just advice if you're playing if you're playing rpgs with random people on the internet don't give them personal information and so on and so forth and you know just me covering my ass on a on a basic level there like you know be careful it's strangers on the internet and all that but you know if you're if you've been if you saw all this and were and they were like cool i want to i want to get involved in this shit uh well my group's busy uh but you can all make your own groups potentially I, I, as far as i'm aware people meet up online to do these kinds of things Similar stuff for uh, Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium is really hard to play and get a group together for because it's such a big, long game that I've heard of people doing it online as like a almost like the way that people do chess by mail and stuff like that. So like based on that, like you can also do that with Twilight Imperium and things like that. I don't know. It's a whole world. Internet brings people together and all that. Uh, but I'm looking forward to a campaign and. Uh, Hope you guys enjoy it. We're probably meeting up on Tuesday early afternoon Pacific time. Uh, like 2 or 3 p.m. maybe is kind of the vague thing we were going on. Sorry, it can't be more consistent. Uh, it's a bunch of people. The First and foremost, the session has to happen. And that's more important than the stream being consistent. Because the people need to be able to get together and do the session. So it all it's all about, it's all a matter of everyone else's schedules in the group. And how well that group can get things to happen. So that'll be interesting. Our group is, uh, Andrew is playing a halfling bard. Marty is playing a dragonborn paladin. 
Colonel RPG is playing a uh, a dwarven hunter. And who else do we have? Oh yeah, and, I, and of course I'm playing a uh, a tabaxi sorcerer. I think those are the only four players we have nailed down for sure. Yeah. We have one other person that might join, but they've been inconsistent so far in giving in responding despite their original interests, so they might not actually be uh consistent enough to be a consistent player, but we'll see if they if they end up being in, in this or not. But it might just be the four of us, which is already a pretty decent party size, and then Effie is gonna be the DM because he's got the most uh D and D experience by far. In particular, what I find interesting is that Colonel RPG is going to be joining us, and Colonel RPG has an entire YouTube channel dedicated to playing CRPGs. But funnily enough, has never played a tabletop RPG, even though that's like the inspiration for his entire channel's genre of everything he plays on his channel. So this will be informative for him, I suppose. So that'll be kind of interesting to have him get his first tabletop experience. And hopefully everyone has a good time. Uh, Andrew tried to Dungeon Master for his friends once, but they just didn't go very far, so he's mostly inexperienced. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this group handles. It's a completely different group. Uh, the only person in this group that I've ever done D&D with was Marty, because I've played some at his house. But it's mostly a, a new group that I'm not used to interacting with, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I would have loved to have... Stephanie and Bird, but Bird doesn't like D&D uh, and doesn't really want to do it ever again. Uh, and Stephanie has an hourly schedule where every single week she has a completely different schedule and, and it's a full-time load and she can even work nights. So like, it's just a mess. So unfortunately, uh, D&D is like sort of like the privilege of people that have consistent schedules, I suppose. If you're anybody that has an inconsistent schedule, it's super hard because you're trying to schedule with all these different people. So you need to come up with a consistent time to meet each week so that it can happen at all. Because uh, it's kind of messy to do it with that if anyone's missing and so on. Uh, and Stephanie just can't, won't, just won't be able to consistently make it. That's just the reality of the kind of job that she has. Uh, I can, I, she, we can flexibly make it work for like these other things I record with her, but she just can't like promise to be around at like a specific time on a Saturday every week or whatever. So it just, it just won't happen. Uh, it's rough. We were talking about this before and it's like, if you have like a bowling group or like a group that likes to meet up for basically any other reason, you can be like, oh yeah, we just go bowling on Saturdays and whoever shows up, shows up and any other hobby mostly you can have people drop in and out from session to session but D, D has such a continuity to it and as a story continuously made all the more so by it being a youtube series uh that not being able to show up every session uh just kind of messes the whole thing up i know there's i know there are some conceit some settings that are drop in drop out but i don't know if that'll be, i don't know if that'll really be that fitting for this kind of case so we'll see i don't know but I'm looking forward to more D&D. I've missed it. It's been a while. See you guys next time. Hope this was fun for somebody. This was a weird experiment that was hopefully entertaining or informative or something for someone. It definitely took a long time to record. It just kind of became became today's project. I just didn't feel like I just didn't feel like like doing let's plays today, I guess, or something. But also this was weighing on me. I needed to like do this it definitely took longer because i did this but 
at least it's at least i'm getting it done because i i uh this is on my to-do list and I, I kept putting it off i'm like i have a deadline i gotta i gotta do this even though it's kind of boring to like stare at these books for a while but yeah hope this is hope this turns out to be a neat campaign see you guys next time and also see you on saturday if you can make it but if not the videos will be up afterwards when i edit them and stuff so you're not gonna miss it it'll be around <laughs>